Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. You can find us on Twitter at political underscore beats, also via Facebook as well. Search for the show. We invite you to subscribe to our feed for new episodes through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts through 2024, Stitcher, or tune in or nationalreview.com. Go right there, click on the podcast tab, and find all the fine NR shows, including this one right here, Political Beats. Listen and leave reviews when possible. Helps us find new listeners. Also, we direct you over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash politicalbeats. Support us. Help the show stay ad-free as it is right now. We have entry-level support for saying, good job, guys, and some voting privileges, a little some extras along the way, mid-level for early access to all of our new shows and all of them at a higher audio quality, and that our upper-level bestest friends, you get the early access and the higher audio quality and monthly exclusive content episodes, remastered shows from the past, playlists, and more. All of it at patreon.com slash politicalbeats. Now, the part of the program where we say thank you individually to some of our Patreon supporters. You could be on this list, too. Thank you to Yolanda Cortez, Yobus, Jesse Dula, Jim Sellers, Michael Shore, Colin Rusk, Jonathan Ellsworth, Michael Dobler, Lex Myers, and Lucas Haig. Thank all of you for helping us over at patreon.com slash politicalbeats. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner standing by, as always, Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? I mean, I'm kind of curious. So, Scott, you like a podcast. You like a podcast, Political Beats. It's it's okay. Our early work was a little too esoteric for my taste. When the Genesis two-parter came out in 21, I think we really came into our own. Critically, and artistically. The whole show has a clear, crisp sound and a new sheen of consummate professionalism in mixing and commentary that really gives the songs a big boost. Political Beats has been compared to Pod Save America or, or the editors, but I think we have a far more bitter, cynical sense of humor. Especially the mixing. Mixing, that's the good part. Uh, find Jeff on Twitter at Esoteric CD. And our There's guest. There's an axe behind you. I just want you to know that. <laughs> Why are there all sorts of papers on the floor? Uh, our guest on today. They mentioned that I'm completely insane. <laughs> He's the director of marketing and communications at the Acton Institute. He's Eric Cohn. You can find him on Twitter or X at I, Eric Cohn. Eric, thanks so much for joining us. Scott, Jeff, thanks so much for having me. Really excited to be here. Longtime listener, first time caller, and uh, uh, thrilled to be on the show. Uh, Thank Eric, you for coming. Eric and I both uh, Illinois expatriates now living in Michigan. So we have many things in common, including a love of our artists we're featuring today. Before we get to that, Eric, take a few moments, if you would, please. Tell us about what you do over at the Acton Institute and in your, uh, your path, your career. Yeah, so now I run the marketing and communications team here at the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty, and our, our mission is to promote a free and virtuous society characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles and work to connect good intentions and sound economics. So we've been around since 1990 right here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. We're founded by uh, Chris Maurin and Father Robert Sirico. And if that uh, Sirico last name sounds familiar to you for all of you pop culture trivia people out there, 
Uh, that's because you're probably familiar with uh, Father Sirico's late brother, Tony Sirico, Polly Walnuts from The Sopranos. Uh, like prior to that, I was in Illinois. I was at the Illinois Policy Institute. I've been in uh, consulting in the political world for a while. I'm thrilled to be on the board of America's Future, which is a great organization that empowers young people to build freer communities around them. Uh, the most latest project that I was involved with here at Acton was a documentary film called The Hong Konger, Jimmy Lai's Extraordinary Struggle for Freedom. Jimmy's a political dissident and newspaper publisher who just passed a, a thousand days in prison in Hong Kong and is really the personification of what has happened to Hong Kong since it's been handed over to the Chinese. So I encourage people to check out the film at freejimmylai.com and the rest of the work that we do at Acton at acton.org. Eric is our guest today for an episode that so many people thought would never happen. And yet, with enough time and enough pressure, anyone will break. And Jeff is clear evidence of that. As Political Beats takes a path into the life and music of Huey Lewis and the news. Folks, they're doing this for my birthday, too, which is the worst part. I just turned 33, and like that's like facing death, and the, it's scaring it straight in the eyeballs. And then I have to consider my mortality once again with this episode. Wow. We'll hear more about what Jeff thinks about Huey in a bit, but we turn the floor back over to Eric to explain to all of us uh, why you love Huey Lewis and the news, how you came to the music, and why people should care about these songs. Well, what is there to say about Huey Lewis in the news that hasn't already been said as the prelude to plunging an axe into Jarrett Leto's face? Uh, <laughs> you know, this is, I go back to when I was a kid and I was a weird kid. Um, I had a collection of 45s that I would spin on a Sesame Street Big Bird record player. And I was into music, popular music, uh, at an age when most kids were probably still listening to kid music. And... This was undeniably, I was born in 82, one of the biggest bands of the 1980s. And as you know, we'll get to with sports, just almost inescapable. New York, New York is everything they say, and no face that I'd rather be. Where else can you do a half a million things, all at a quarter to three? When they play their music, ooh, that modern music. also contributed to, and I know we'll talk about this, my mom basically from the point when it launched had MTV on in our house. And MTV and Huey Lewis in the news kind of have a, a great reciprocal relationship where um, they were big on MTV early on and helped to propel MTV and MTV helped uh, propel them. Um, but I, I just, I have always loved this band. I, I think they seem to me Kind of simultaneously entirely of this moment in the 1980s, but also kind of retro at the same time. Like you can think of the doo-wop backing vocals uh, on If This Is It. But 
I, I think the other reason that I really love Huey Lewis and his music is uh, how benevolent his music is, right? So you have songs about love, fun, finding the joy in life and the joy of playing music and making music. And as a musician myself, I, that always spoke to me. You know, I rewatched the, uh, well, kind of rewatched, watched the remastered um, uh, Behind the Music mm -hmm. with Huey Lewis uh, in preparation for this. And I, I love that he said in there, the object for him was always to be in a band with your pals, playing music and having people show up and make a living. And for anybody who's ever sat down with an instrument who really loved that experience, like that was what you were seeking. Um, and it's it's the popularity of the band, I think, is a pushback on this idea that for art to be real or good and to be authentic, that the artist needs to be a tortured soul of some kind. Look, I have plenty of music taste that speaks to that. I mean, Radiohead is still probably my favorite band of all time. But Huey just comes off as this like good, nice, happy person. And we'll, you know, we'll get to his, his health problems, I'm sure. But he's taken the worst in life in stride. And it, it, there's just this love and fun that seems to exist in his music that is just um, absolutely appeals to me and, and to me seems irresistible. in the news, as all Political Beats listeners know, have a very special place in my heart. Sports was the very first album I loved. My dad had it uh, on LP, an actual record. I remember playing it, sitting there with the liner notes and reading the, 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 the lyrics as the songs were playing, turning it over, seeing the pictures of Huey Lewis in the news doing the national anthem for the San Francisco Giants game or the San Francisco 49ers games. I played sports just constantly when I was three, four, five years old. That was the music I was listening to. Huey Lewis and the News was my first ever concert. And I know I'm giving away like a security question here, but for the story, for the good of the story, my first concert ever, 1991, birthday present, hard at play tour, World Music Theater, Tinley Park, Illinois, the Sub Dudes opened. I don't know what happened to the Sub Dudes. My first concert ever was Huey Lewis and the News, and they were absolutely the first band I loved. I own sports. I own four. I own Small World. I own Hard at Play. I loved Huey Lewis and the News. How do you describe what they did? They are so synonymous with the music of the 80s. To, to take it a little deeper as to where they came from and 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 their influences— the, the Huey Lewis equation that I came up with was, is, is pub rock, you know, what we, we would call pub rock in the UK, you know, Nick Lowe, Elvis Costello, Joe Jackson, bands like this, plus a little new wave, no doubt about it, Devo in a particular way that I'll, I'll talk about in a bit, but other and new synth wave. particular synth synthesizers right. really is yep. the new wave aspect, yeah. But also the 50s rock and, and doo-wop and even a little soul in that equation as well. And that equation would change over time based on popular tastes and record sales. But that's where this band 
comes from. And it was and is so satisfying to me, and I didn't realize this till well, well, way, way after the fact, that my first musical love is Huey Lewis and the News. And as I begin to listen more widely, who do I else, who else do I really love? What genres do I really love? Well, it's Elvis Costello and Nick Lowe and the pub rock scene and the, and, and the new wave era of the late 70s, early 80s. And then down the road to realize how all those bands interconnected and how Huey Lewis and the News is, is the commercial follow through of so much of what they were doing is so satisfying mm-hmm. that my tastes are on a continuum. I, it really all makes sense in the end. Great to find out that you're internally consistent. It's That's like, yes, I fantastic. have principles. These are my musical principles, and I've stuck to them, whether I realized it or not. You know, like, it's like I just like this thing, and there's a reason that yeah. all these things fall into place for me. You know, I know exactly what you mean. We'll, we'll talk more about this through the show, but there are some things you should know. Huey Lewis and the News is a band. It is a real band. It is not a rotating group of members. It is not Huey and random people. Uh, these are guys who played together, many played together, younger, found themselves together in the news and the news lineup, extremely consistent, zero member changes from from the, the inception all the way through 1994. And then only because there was a legal issue <laughs> with the bassist. No other changes past that until Chris Hayes left in uh, like the mid 2000s. These guys liked playing together. These guys enjoyed each other's company. These guys had fun and they wrote together. This too is not just Huey Lewis writing a bunch of songs and then having guys playing. I mean, I I compare just slightly to Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, which is Tom Petty playing with a bunch of crack musicians, but those songs are mostly Petty's and Mike Campbell helps, helps to write them. Huey Lewis and the News, you know, I know Huey is a fine musician, but if you look through the credits on all the songs, I cannot think of a single song. There might not be one in which Huey Lewis gets a sole songwriting credit on a tune. It is always with a member of the band or occasionally an outside writer. It's always Huey and Chris Hayes, the guitarist. It's always Huey and Johnny Cola, the saxophonist, guitarist. Sean Hopper, the keyboardist, organist, he writes songs. Bill Gibson writes a lot of good songs for the band. Even the bassist, Mario, he gets a a co-writing credit here and there. So they really were a band that worked together on these songs and these albums. They can really play despite some of the synth and you know, you know overdubs that they that they used in the in the mid 80s on those albums these guys can really play they're very good live and these guys can sing you know the a cappella songs that they put on a few albums and a, a few in the early 90s as well they're really great together so that's what you should know about Huey Lewis in the news and i think one of the reasons is 
one of the reasons they were so successful, and Eric had some great points, but I think another reason too is they don't demand too much from you as a listener. They bring you this music fully formed, and it's just up to you to, 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 to enjoy it. They're not asking you to think too hard lyrically. They're not asking you to sit through eight and a half minute tracks. They are really about presenting you with a smorgasbord of hooks, vocal hooks and synth hooks and bass hooks and yeah, drum hooks. And Chris Hayes, his, his lead guitar is so melodic and so memorable in what he chooses to play. There are all so many ways to get into this music and they don't care how it happens. Just come along for the ride. And I think that's what makes the music so fun, so entertaining, and so appealing to a broad audience to the point where they're still playing very large crowds, very big shows until they could not anymore about five years ago. I love Huey Lewis and the News. It's not a guilty pleasure. It is just a pleasure to listen to Huey Lewis and the News. And now we have to find out what the third member of our crew has to say about this band that Eric and I so clearly love. Surprise, Mr. Bertram. I think one of the things that's really, really just abundantly obvious to me listening to you talk about your love of him. And of course, for those unaware, um, I, I have long said that I hated Huey Lewis in the news and I was never going to do an episode on them. Because like in the same way I said I'd never listen to Rush, which is an analogy we may <laughs> return to at a later date. Um uh, and so, you know, I just thought, well, what do we have on the roster? And, you know, we had a guest for Huey, which was Eric. And I was just like, well, you know, wouldn't it be funny? You know, just let's just do it. You know, like, let's just this is this is like big Scott's white whale. How can I say no? He's done so many episodes like talk talk with me. Right. <laughs> so, like, let's do it. You know, uh, and I have to say, I realized they're your genesis. And I think it's so telling that we had very identical experiences with like both of these groups because we were both born in almost the exact same time frame. And the reason I rejected Huey Lewis has everything to do with my own personal weird bildungsroman, my little path through life. If you remember, like, you know, when I said, like, well, the first album CD I ever bought was Genesis. You heard Phil Collins on the radio and I Mm -hmm. loved it and I loved it. But then I thought, oh, this is uncool now. And I hate 
hate it and I don't want to ever return to it. Well, I returned obviously to Genesis very early on, but that's because I would argue Genesis is like one of the greatest groups of all time. And it's truly, we'll talk about lyrics that demand something of you. They're like a weird and off kilter and profound band. But another group that was every bit as ubiquitous for me during my childhood years was of course, Huey Lewis in the news, just like you, Scott. Hey, did your dad have it on CD or was it vinyl? No, vinyl, vinyl. Vinyl? Yep. Nah, so we had it on CD. My dad was one of those bleeding edge early adopters of CDs. So there were like three, like kind of four pop rock CDs that were just ubiquitous, mm-hmm. always being played. One of them was Brothers in Arms by Dire Straits. One of them was The Police's Greatest Hits. You'll notice they're all coming around around the same time. One of them was my copy of Invisible Touch. And then the other one was, of course, Sports by Hubie Lewis in the News. And it probably was the first one that we got. And I, just like you, sat and listened to every note of it. I watched all the videos. I remember him being ubiquitous from Back to the Future to like, you know, Hip to be Square, which I thought was the most aggressively unpleasant video I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, we'll we'll maybe talk about that one later. That one's like, why do I need to see this person's chin whiskers like up close in a video? Anyway, um, and then, of course, when my tastes changed, I never came back. This is the worst thing of all to admit. This makes me seem shallow. What absolutely sealed the deal was the stupid joke that I just did at the front of the show. It was American Psycho. Because remember, at that time, I'm actually getting back into proselytizing about Genesis. Oh, hey, you know, Genesis is really great. And then I have 100,000 snarky idiots telling me, hey, you know what? You sound like Patrick (laughs) Bateman. And getting that getting that shtick parroted back at me just like a hundred times like how many times do you think i've heard it you have no idea friend how many times i've heard it but of course because it ensnared both genesis and huey lewis in the news i think i made this sort of psychological decision to defend genesis and say okay that's funny because huey sucks (laughs) and i never i never went back to listen to it this is an absolute truth not one time since I was a child, since the year, say, 1984 to like 1989, when it was unavoidable and ubiquitous, have I listened to a Huey Lewis in the News song until we booked this show? Which means I actually have a lot of interesting insights. Primarily among them is that I regret being such a snarky little bitch. This is actually some very good music, particularly early in their career. And if you guys want to call me Patrick Bateman, because you know inevitably I'm going to end up talking <laughs> like he talks. 
because I mean, that's why people twigged on it because I have that very earnest way of telling you my opinions. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you, early Huey Lewis in the news is pretty good and it's pretty fun. And when it culminates in sports, boy, they really did come into their own with that record. It's an amazing record. They actually did a lot of pretty fun stuff afterwards. never considered them a great group. I think the arguments that both Eric and Scott made about him already really kind of say, you know, explain his virtues really well. I think the one thing I'd like to echo is the point. I just made it to Scott actually right before the show. And he said it in his, in his bit, which I think is really important is that I never really understood until this moment that Huey Lewis is the culmination of all that pub rock new wave stuff that I, of course, loved and knew when I became a musical hipster and was getting into Nick Lowe and Elvis Costello and all of that kind of stuff. And Brinsley Schwartz, like, you know, how obscure is that? But Huey Lewis was there on the scene. And Scott, I think, maybe can explain some of that in a moment. He was there playing with them at the time. Those guys were there in the pub rock scene in England. They um, came from that place and... I think the reason that it's never clocked to me before that Huey Lewis's mega commercial success was just like, you know, uh, the final apotheosis of that sound is because it ended up becoming the sound of the 80s. And like ironically, pub rock, which sort of disappeared in its time and that that aesthetic, which didn't really seem to have a lot of like fans who were good you know, critical fans, but it didn't have a lot of commercial success. It, it only took the Reagan 80s to make it really take off. It just became unrecognizable in the form that it was. So this is going to be a really fascinating episode, and I'm really glad to do it. It was It's high time, guys, and uh, I promise we've already laid down all the plastic wrap, and I'm wearing a, a, a see-through <laughs> raincoat, and so we're ready to go. to sort of explain the origins of Huey. I can do that. And of course, Eric can jump in if I forget anything in the prehistory of Huey Lewis. But this is one of the things that has has fascinated me about Huey. Huey's on my bucket list of five interviews that I'd love to do, you know, at some point before either he dies or I die, I guess. I, I, I think his his path, his life has been so interesting. I'd love to sit down and talk with him for an hour. All the things he did before 
Huey Lewis in the news is one entire career and that he's got all this tacked on to the end of it. So first, not his real name, right? Hugh Anthony Craig Third is Huey Lewis's real name. Born in New York, grew up out in California, and has the kind of childhood that you might see in a movie. He was a high school baseball star. He was brilliant. I think he perfect SAT score. He went to Cornell to major in engineering. His family, his, his dad was a DA out east at one point. His mom was much more of a free spirit. She loved the Grateful Dead. She was a uh, Cheating. She's friends with the Grateful Dead's manager. Yeah, she was cheating on uh, on, on Mr. Lewis, Mr. Craig, with a, a bunch of the beat poets of the time. And, you know, they're the kind of parents who encourage Huey to go hitchhike across the U.S. And, ah, yeah, go ahead, go to Europe and with no money in the backpack and see what you can do with yourself. And so that's what he did. He, he hitchhiked, hitchhiked across the U.S., across Europe while he was still in college, took along a harmonica, taught himself how to play harmonica along the way while waiting for people to pick him up and take him to different places. Dropped out of Cornell, never graduated, never got that engineering degree and moved back to the Bay Area after all of that and joined a little band called Clover. And Clover's going to come up a number of times in the course of the episode, but we're really not going to talk about their music. Clover's a weird band. Everyone seems to know them. Oh, yeah, Clover. No one's really heard the actual music they made, and it's not as if you're missing a ton. Cl Clover was a confused band. They they were in the U.S. They got invited over to the U.K. by Nick Lowe, actually himself. He said, come over to the U.K. and, and record, and they did, and nothing ever really happened for them. And yet, post-Clover, you have a number of members who went on to really interesting careers, who'd write songs for other people like Tommy Two-Tone and others. Um, and, and Okay, so he, one of the other guys in Clover was a guy named John McPhee. Right. And he left before Clover mutated into Huey Lewis in the news. He plays all over Miami, is true. And he actually has done a lot of memorable stuff with Elvis Costello. He's a Yep. brilliant beautiful pedal steel guitarist yes, yes. and so like i i picked up some clover stuff thinking well i mean at least i'll get to hear some nice pedal so how do you waste a guy's talents like that <laughs> it, it, it just doesn't work it, it, you're right it's just none of it comes together i was really disappointed myself too so in in clover huey plays harmonica he mainly doesn't sing he sings a bit but he's mostly there as a harmonica player they all go to england when nick lowe invites them over and they get involved in this pub rock scene of Nick Lowe and Dave Edmonds and Rockpile and and uh, Huey gets involved with Thin Lizzy as well and Phil Lynott and ends up playing with Thin Lizzy. Hey, I'm going to call foul there, Scott. Come on. We got to. It's Tin Lizzy, my friend. Be, be, be true to the Brits. Come on <laughs> All right. Tin Lizzy plays with them, plays out a bunch of live albums, plays out a bunch of of uh, of Lynott's uh, solo albums as well. And Clover did record a few albums over there. They met a very important guy named Mutt Lang who helped record and produce the Clover albums. Even that couldn't get them on the radar screen. Honey, it won't last long, but you're mine tonight. Ain't nobody, oh, nobody so. And 
the band, most of the band, Clover helps out Ellis Costello on My Aim is True, which was a, a good break for a number of those guys. Sometimes it's said that the news played on My Aim is True, which is not quite true. It's one member of the news. Huey didn't play on My Aim is True, but Sean Hopper, the band's uh, keyboardist and organ player, did play on My Aim is True with a bunch of the other guys from Clover. So Clover breaks up around 1978 without any success. Uh, Sean Hopper from Clover and Huey form a band called American Express. And I will never forget reading about this. There was a one of those like scholastic book paperbacks. I'm sure you guys read a bunch of these when you were young. It was called Huey Lewis and the News, a biography and released in like 1985 to cash in on their success. But it had this whole backstory in there. And I remember a lot. How of did I not have this? I still I love this. It's just like one of those things you read in like, you know, during recess or yes, something. And when Jeff, it was raining. It's hilarious. I still have it. I have it. It's awesome. at my house right now. And all, this whole backstory is in there, including, you know, it was originally the American Express and then Huey Lewis and the American Express. And they said, well, you might get sued over this. And so they yeah. informed the news. And who's in the news? Sean Hopper on Oregon, Huey Lewis from from both those guys from Clover. And they joined up with um, guys from a band called Soundhole in San Francisco. Soundhole played with Van Morrison on a bunch of his stuff in the 1970s. Uh, Johnny Cola plays saxophone and plays guitar. And he played with Sly and the Family Stone through some of the 70s output that he had. Bill Gibson. All really drums. good musicians. But man, you just knew a band named Soundhole was not going <laughs> to make right. it. Because that sound, that's At least not, sounds, not until the filthy. 1990s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You had to wait until the sound. 1990s for a Soundhole to really be popular. I mean, I understand they're talking about the guitar, but that just sounds like the dirtiest name. It does. <laughs> it does. And then uh, Mario Cipollina uh, uh, is on bass. And that's the news. And that's the lineup for a long, long time. Those guys got together and stayed together once they formed back in 1979. The very first song, which we don't have to play because it's quite frankly terrible, is a it's it's it was released by the American Express. It's called Exo Disco. And it's a <laughs> disco version of the theme from the movie Exodus. Because, of course, okay, okay you know what? We have to play it now. Because I'm sorry, okay. I've never heard. I didn't. Hear it, but I just, I just want to hear it now in the final show because right. it sounds terrible. I'm like the words they're going to plan it. I'll give you 30 seconds worth here. Nothing about, that, nothing about that sounds like anything Huey Lewis in the news would go on to do. Thank goodness, because that sound does not deserve to be replicated along the way. But that, I just really want to go back and be a part of the conversation of like, guys, <laughs> what do we do? Hey, 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 what if we take the theme from the movie Exodus and we make it a disco tune. Like I just, I want to be a part of that conversation to find I mean, out how Nick, that actually. I mean, went. that was a well, that was a. Nick Lowe, went, Nick Lowe went to number one in Japan doing Bay City Rollers. We love you. Yeah, so man, there you go. Knows? Yeah, and they did. That, you know, you know the, there was a trend in the late seventies of setting, you know, this like the Star Wars theme to disco. Like, yeah, people would yeah. do this. So there was some sense behind it, but it, it is not executed in any way, shape, or form. 
But that leads us to the debut album from Huey Lewis and the News, released in June of 1980. This one, for a long time, when I was looking for it, was very hard to find because it was not did not sell. It was not successful. And it even features a sound that they would sort of slide away from relatively quickly. I really enjoy this album, guys, and I've been talking for a while, so someone else can start. This is inexplicably obscure. This album is just remarkably good. You know what, Eric, you should go first. Tell me what you think of this, because I actually, uh, this is one of the ones that really surprised me. Yeah, I... I'm going to get into all of the things that is you've mentioned the Patrick Bateman theme that we're going to inevitably return to because it just looms so large over all of this. But all the things that I think Patrick Bateman gets wrong about Huey Lewis in the news. And one of them is that uh, Huey's work is uh, early work is not too new wave for me. In fact, I think this is an really fantastic album like the only note that i have on the album is less clapping please like it is just <laughs> the, the the claps that come in on some of the songs really just i don't know it, it strikes me as weird but you're right that it doesn't sell but boy I, there's just some there's some really good stuff on this album like the, announcing yourself with uh some of my lies are true sooner sooner or later it's just a great kickoff I think one of my favorite songs, and uh, will probably be on my list of five at the end of the show. kind of with horns and it it i don't know it works and this is where we can also start talking about the music videos the music video is them playing on top of this like sewage station at a pier in california very 1980s like running in place and and very goofy (laughs) stuff um but it's it's a great song and i think there's a lot of great songs on here as i'm pulling out like the ones i I want to make notes about there's yeah, I want to just interrupt you for a second because uh, to tell you the thing about sooner, so, you know, sooner or later, I call it that. I guess it's called some of my lies are true. The thing that shocks me about that is the guitar work, which is the thing that's the most immediately obvious thing about the first Huey Lewis and the News album is that their guitarist, who I can't tell you his name, it's you guys Chris, know him, and Chris Hayes, and I didn't mention mm-hmm. where he comes in, but he was not a member of Soundhole or American Express. They picked him up in '79, and he was like 18 or 19, not quite Tommy Stinson young, but very, very young. He was the kid in the band and he was brought in as the lead guitarist chris Hay- chris hayes okay. well that's even more impressive than to find out he's that young because he sounds like steve howe okay he plays guitar lines it sounds something like out of yes is going for the one album at times he's got a tone and an approach that's very kind of you know much more on the arty side of new wave or the angular and aggressive side of new wave and much less on once you get to sports you can still hear some of this on some of their songs some of this new wave sound but this is actually like a very different sounding group and of course i'm a new wave and art rock and like post-punk maniac so like this was such a shock this one song alone Say 
Eric, where were you going with the rest? Well, no, I think in addition to guitar, also Mario Cipollina's bass, I think really like the bass work on this album really, really stands out to me. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's just, I think there's a whole bunch of really, it, it is amazing to me in a way that this does not sell. Cause I think there's just a bunch of really great songs on here. And, um, uh, now he like even songs that I don't want to like at the beginning, like now here's you every time that song starts, I think I don't like it. And by a minute into the song, I'm grooving along with it. When, I, when I hear that song start, I always think it's the theme of an 80s sitcom. And then like you, 100%. Like, oh, wait, this is a pretty good song. In fact, you and ties or something like that or, or like you know yeah, bosom wonder, buddies or something like that yeah uh i want you um the four hits the the four chord hits in that song that every time i hear it it makes me think of since you've been gone by rainbow which only came out like a year prior to this album um but I, that's a great song don't ever tell me that you love me Every time I hear it, I think it it belongs in a musical, which there is a Huey Lewis in the News musical that we'll probably get to mention at the end. But like it feels like it belongs in a musical and sung by Meatloaf. And, you know, as I've played, I think, like 20 stage musicals in, in my musical career. So that is a high compliment for me saying it belongs in a musical. Um, but I think it it it's really great. And I'm it's it's a different sound but i this is what again where i think patrick bateman is wrong like it is not too new way for my taste it is just like it it is a deeply underappreciated album it's weird how obscure that it is uh it's weird to me that it didn't sell more but i i think it is a fantastic debut album she said don't ever tell me that you love me I actually almost want to let I can send Scott's raring to go, but I just want to throw one one point in it. I think it's actually the only I think I'd say against it is that I don't know if it's as well sequenced as it could be. This is a thing I find about all the Huey Lewis albums is they sort of tail off at the end. You know, he doesn't he should stash some of the big hits at the end because it's stacked so strongly up 
all the way up through, I guess, Trouble in Paradise. And it's only the last two tracks that I don't much care for. But the one that I really adore was just another one. I never heard Don't Make Me Do It before in my That's life. That's the best song on the record, Jeff. There you go. Yeah. Okay. Am I stealing your thunder? No, stuff? go ahead. Well, I can talk about talk other about stuff. It. That's fine. Go ahead. I mean, no, I don't have, I don't want to steal too much, but I'm just saying like, that is like a compulsively good Dave Edmonds, Nick Lowe kind of pub rock song. It's a little glitzier, but it's got that great organ. Um, and it, it's, uh, again, you know, inexplicably obscure, and it's uh, so much better than I could ever expected to be you know, Huey Lewis' debut album to be. I think, like, as I said, I think almost all these songs hold up. Go for it. All right. So you're both right, of course. This is a weirdly underappreciated album. I, look, I understand things don't sell, right? I, things happen. Debuts go and clank. and But for it not to sort of be rediscovered even after Huey Lewis sells 20 million plus albums, it just sort of is left in the background, not thought about, not talked about. I think one of the reasons is... You the, thought they would have reissued it or something, well, I right? Think, you know, just I, to cash in? I don't think the band likes it very much. Huey's mm. talked about it a few times saying he doesn't like the way they recorded it. They want, they wanted it to sound live, so they went in and played live and did like two takes. And he said, that's just a way to make things sound messy. If you want to sound live, you have to practice so you're good enough that you sound live. So I, I'm not sure. Yeah, she love... says a lot about how their aesthetic developed over yes. time, if you think about yes. it. But mm -hmm. I kind of like this, too, I have to say. But I, I think it sounds I think it's a great, great sounding record. I mean, I, I love the way that the songs sound and the instruments sort of burst through, through the speakers. I think it's a great sounding record full of great songs. It's not perfect. But to, to have it sort of just fly completely under the radar for so long is just weird and strange. Don't Make Me Do It, which Jeff mentioned. That's my favorite song on the record. I, I love right there. You have that though, this trademark backing vocals from the news. Um, and by the way, I should mention at the very top here, Johnny Cola is so important to the band and in, in what he does. He plays sax, he plays guitar, but he is the band's arranger and he works a lot on the melody. So when you hear these backing vocals arranged in such a way, you know, Johnny did that. When you hear certain decisions made in how the song is recorded or, or what's being used, that's a lot of Johnny Cola. And you hear it right mm -hmm. here on this first song or this first song that I'm talking about. Don't make me do it. That's a lot of what Johnny does best, that sort of Motown flavor. I like the hand claps in this one, Eric. Uh, and yeah, real heavy bass. Mario plays a great bass throughout this album. Uh, Don't ever tell me that you love me, which Eric mentioned. That one sounds, so you can hear, as Jeff said, yeah, it kind of sounds like Dave Edmonds. That sounds like Joe Jackson, right? Don't ever tell me that you love me is kind of on the man turned sideways with that really aggressive bass line from Mario uh, on that track. You can hear a little you know, of what they picked up from Elvis and a little of what they picked up from Tim Lizzie. And they're taking all these influences and sort of putting them through this new wave grinder to get the, the final product. 
um, stop, stop trying works for me because it sort of flips the script. You have a very aggressive verse and these quieter choruses, you know, stop trying, stop trying to call. And, um, and I love that. Also, by the way, very hilariously, like naively sweet lyrics, like that kind of embodies, you know, what Eric was saying about the Huey Lewis kind of aesthetic is just sort of good nature. Stop trying to change her. She's already the woman she is. (laughs) So (laughs) sincere, you know, but that's, that's what you're going to get with these songs. I love that. Huey Huey is nothing if not earnest. Yeah. like really kind of disarming at this point i didn't expect it uh i really like hearts the other one i want to focus a few minutes on because i I think it's one of their great songs and it's one that was rediscovered a few years later because it was put on the a live version was put on the soundtrack for usa for africa the the we are the world album Mm -hmm. and it's troubled in paradise and troubled in paradise also was played a lot on mtv around that time because they did a live another live version that got played and so i listened to it a lot and it's um it's it's strangely serious, right? I mean, yes, fun, 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 uh, largely lighthearted. But every now and then you do get a serious song. Trouble in Paradise is a serious song uh, about a guy who went out to L.A. and came back with a terrible cocaine habit and can't find himself anymore. Um, uh, Billy's home. He just got back from L.A. Plenty of lines, but nothing to say. See, he we can be a little under the radar there. Plenty of lines, nothing to say. He's not a movie star. He's got a cocaine habit, but he's come back and things his life is is destroyed. And it's how people are trying to help him build back. We've got Trouble in Paradise. Musically, it's a really, really great song. I think that's one of the highlights of this. And I'm happy at least that song itself got saved a few years later by its placement on the USA for Africa album. There's a scream inside that shouts, here I am. Some people say we got to do all we can. Me, I don't know. You see, I've been there myself once or twice. not perfect there's some weird like noodling midway through who cares that gets a little out there um i like that actually yeah it's even go ahead go ahead it's, it's even weirder when you know that it's i i learned this and in, in looking into this for the show it was on the soundtrack or it was in the movie of rock and roll high school yeah. which featured really? the ramones yeah, I know. Um, Everyone knows. We've yeah. already done the Rock and Roll High School to you know in depth here on the it, show. It is it is in the movie. Uh yeah. No idea. Yeah. And 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 it's it's a little top heavy, as Jeff said. It's not as strong toward the back 
part of the album. But as a debut, man, it's really good. And I don't, I don't know. Maybe we, we help here, but I don't know why it sort of slipped through a ton of cracks. It is streaming everywhere. You can listen to it anytime you want, and you should. It's a great album. City girl, it's always this way. about this debut for before we move on to his uh, follow-up record uh no other than to uh, echo what you've said that like I, I don't know why this hasn't been reissued it it is a really good album and it it should be uh but you right scott's right you can stream it in plenty of places people should listen to this album it is surprisingly good for uh for a debut especially if all you're familiar with is the big 1980s hits of huey lewis in the news there's, there's just great great music on this album the problem. So, yeah, I've been tr- I've been trying to. Oh, you were going to say something, Scott? Well, I was going to transition if you'd like, but. Uh... Oh no, I was going to do something because I was just saying I've been thinking about like you know the way I do it. You guys, of course, been steeped in Huey for your entire lives. You know, like 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 you know like like a fine like rum aging in an oak casket. You know. <clears throat> Meanwhile, I, I'm just all putting this together, and to me, picture this: the follow up album actually makes a lot of sense given the commercial failure of the debut. Because I think the thing about Picture This, it's actually not a bad album at all. I think it's pretty good. But I think it's a distinct step down from the debut. And I think it's telling to me that the two best songs on it, the ones I like the most, are cover tracks. And I think it's because they were feeling pressured to make a hit. Now, I think this also goes back to what Scott said earlier about how this is a band where, like, you know, they all just wanted to show up and have a job. And, you know, like, you know, and, you know, like play with each other professionally. And, like, if you aren't selling records, then, boy, that starts to become a very iffy proposition so here's where they started panicking a little bit and i and you know just again setting aside all the patrick bateman-esque irony i actually do detect this is the point where they still feel very uncertain about their position and i think the record suffers a little bit for it i know it happens almost every time So there's 100% no doubt about that, Jeff. And this you can find in the 1985 Scholastic book. Um, they were desperate for a hit. You, you, you can't you can't make it in music without a hit. They had to have a hit. And they knew that this was the album that was going to make them or break them. They were going to continue or, or they're going to they're be done. That's one of the reasons why this cover is just 
Huey's face, a close-up of Huey's face. Like, it was very serious. Like, it, it had to happen now. No, no time to sort of mess around with weird album covers. No, this is us. This is Huey Lewis. Take us or leave us, but this is our best shot. So their, the goal was they wrote the best eight songs they could. They found the two best outside songs they could possibly find. And this was a uh, uh, an album they they, they self produced. The album, the the, the, the the label, Chrysalis, let them produce themselves. He would, had worked with Mutt Lang in England. He had worked with those you know rock pile guys. He knew his way around the studio. And Johnny Cola also excellent in the studio. They let him produce it themselves. They recorded with Jim Gaines, who had worked with Stax and worked with Steve Cropper. Some good people behind the scenes here. So they had eight songs. I didn't know that Huey Lewis that was like a studio guy. I had no idea. I said that's another new he, thing I just he learned. He doesn't think of himself as a studio guy. Like if you ask him, he said, ah, I'm not a great producer. But, you know, he, he produced uh, I Knew the Bride for Nick Lowe. And he, all these albums are self-produced. So he is involved he in many Produced a crap ton of like, you know, huge hits in the 80s. I think he yes. goes his way around yes. the studio because that's one of the things that we're going to talk about on the next record. But anyways, keep going. So they were looking. I mean, he, go ahead, Eric. I say again, what I was what I was saying at the beginning about Huey is he he's just such an interesting figure to me because there's as big as the band was in the 1980s, especially with what's coming after this album, like just for him to have that kind of humility that I think, again, is sincere. He's nothing if not earnest that like I don't think of myself as a great producer or anything. And like he, he's a great band leader. He's a great musician. He's a great producer. And it, there's none of that over the topness that I think you would expect from a band that made it that big and a, and a the front man for a band that made it that big. But they're it's actually going to really show up in a lot of their music videos, yep. too, which, again, yes, is in the sports true. era onwards, it's going to be an <laughs> ongoing theme. But, Scott, you were saying. Yeah. So uh, they're looking for two outside songs. And Huey finds one and uh, Jeff loves it. So I'll leave it for him to talk about one from his friend, Phil Lynott. And the other one that, that uh, they found from the outside. Well, I guess there's another cover late in the album. But the, the, the third one is a song written by. Mutt Lang, the famous producer, who by this point already was pretty famous, you know, producing Back in Black and other things in the early 80s. This is 82 by this point. And he, he gave an XTC a hit in the UK, too. I yep. remember. I mean, yeah, he 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 would he was years away from marrying Shania Twain, but already <laughs> a really, really famous guy. He gave the band a song he was working on called. We both believe in love. And Huey took that and messed around with it a little bit and came out with the song that saved the band, the song that guaranteed they'd have a third album, a song that cracked the top 10, and I think a really great song you guys can weigh in. Do You Believe in Love?
I think it's a great song. I mean, as I said, I think the first, the, best, the the problem with this album is that although some of the self-written stuff is okay, the best two songs clearly are the covers, and that's one of them. And, and yeah, you're 100% right about that. Deserve it hit. And it was one, by the way, another one for me I only just learned about. So you guys maybe heard this one back then. I mean, I'm certain you did, Scott. Uh, brand new to me. And I was like, well, that's darn good. And then I looked and I was like, oh, that's not a Huey song. That's a Mutt Lang a song. Mutt Lang. Well, well, I guess that makes sense. Let me blow your mind then, Jeff, because uh, I, I know I talked about this on the ELO episode, but if you didn't know the song, you wouldn't have, have put two and two together. But I think very clearly it's a song that Mutt Lang borrowed the spirit of from uh, Sweet Talking Woman from ELO. Think about how I'm those certain songs you mentioned go. it, and it because mm-hmm. of reason, yes, and I absolutely didn't clock as I'm like, okay, that's some reference I don't get. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, the, the, the first line of Sweet Talking Woman of is, I was searching, searching on a one way street. And of course, Do You Believe in Love starts. Uh, I was uh, I was walking down a one way street just one-way to look street, in right. for someone to meet. And those same backing vocals come in. So I, I'm going to say either, either Mutt wrote it that way or Huey perhaps took it and was influenced, but someone had heard sweet talking woman and loved that. Somebody's song. been listening to their Jeff Lynn in other words. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And good for them. <laughs> yeah, it was a great song. Exactly. And then, by the way, I guess I'll mention uh, that the other one, of course, and, and Scott tipped it. I, I just love tattoo. I mean, and I, again, I looked at it. I was like, Dang, that is like actually a really hot rhythm track. This band is crackling. It's a great melody. It's a great song. Oh, it's it's a Phil Lynott song. It, it, it's from Tin Liz. I actually don't know if it's one of Lynott's solo tracks or if it's, it's not a solo. I think, I'm pretty first, sure it's a solo track. Yeah, yeah it's from his first solo, solo album, Solo in Soho. I don't really know anything about you know about their their career overall, other than of course like you know, you know whiskey in the jar and the boys are back in town. So I, it's, you know, it's kind of a gap for me. I'll have to check it out. But I think this version is pretty amazing. I'd be I'd be surprised if it was uh, if the other if the original was better. that i think of course they're not they're not stupid they start with change of heart which i think is the really great self-written one on the record yes um and and, and that's got yeah you know, much more of a new wave feel but there is stuff here that just seems to be like total hack work like working for a living is the most generic sounding thing on the planet that's that stuff that bob seeger would have been embarrassed to be churning out in like 1989 for beer man and <laughs> that, was the, that was a caution flag for me when i heard it i was like uh-oh this is the Huey Lewis that I thought I remembered. That's really generic, boring stuff. It's just like, oh, that's the sound of the 80s coming like a tidal wave to hit. Yeah. Um, but and it's also whereas I think it's it's where his earnestness fails him. Right. So it, it, yep. it is semi autobiographical. He wrote right. most of it while he was a truck driver. Um, some of the jobs he references in the song he's actually had. Uh, but I, I agree with you. It, despite it being, you know, somewhat of uh, a hit off of the album, it, it does not do a lot for me. Right. So those are my thoughts really basically on the record. Now, what do you think, Eric? Yeah, I, I, I think this is a more polished album than the previous one, but I don't necessarily know that that's for the better. Um, I agree with you. Change of heart is, is another great way to start 
the album. I think it's probably the best like non-single off of the album. Um, but it's a good start to an album that I just don't really think goes much of anywhere. Uh, tell me a little lie. Man, why did everybody have to experiment with reggae at this period of time? <laughs> um, there's and also how Blow's version of Heart that was also done on a reggae style during this period, 1983 or something like that. Um, yeah. We did it on our Nicolo episode, kind of right. dire. Uh, it's just like, yeah. that thing was better as a soul stomper. Let's just play it straight, folks. I, I hear this one and I think, like again, I think, how has there not been a cover of this by like Real Big Fish and Double Time or something like that? Um, the, the guitar riff, though, kind of saves it for me. And I, mm-hmm. I almost want to like it in spite of itself. Um, I, I agree with you on Tattoo. Uh, the Huey's vocal glissando on She's Got a Silver Armadillo underneath her pillow is just, <laughs> I, it's just crazy. That the that song is crazy in its own way, and I think just kind of good and fun. Um, hope you love me like you say I do. I, this to me feels like it should be an album cut off of Sports. It's also the first appearance of Tower of Power in the horn section, which they're gonna collaborate with a number of times. That just happened by coincidence. They happen to be in the same mm-hmm. recording studio. They ran in, Huey runs into Tower of Power and is like, yeah, we well, want to come play on this track. And, and they do. And it's, uh, you know, it, it works pretty well. Um, I'd say so, yeah. I mean, this is, it's their first hit. It, it really is that scenario like you were describing where they, they have this album and you hear it with so many bands, right? That you've got an album, but they just do not think that there's a hit on the album. And you know what? They're right about that. Um, it's a good thing that it's gifted to them from, from Mutt Lang and with the change in the lyrics. Uh, I also learned, again, rewatching the... Um, behind the music uh huey apparently hates the music video for this it is a little weird like the all of them standing over the woman in the bed sleeping singing to her like it's jarring and a little creepy when it first comes on the screen um but it's you know it's it's a huge hit for them and uh incredibly important for for that reason um and then uh the only one i want to note is uh the only one you know it's my comment about clapping on the last album, no speaking in verses. Like it's just, that is. Especially if you're Huey, if you, if you were run DMC, I'll allow it. Well, if it, you're Huey Lewis in the news. Yeah. Well, thank you. Okay. It, it just makes me think of the, uh, and we'll get to, you know, we are the world later, but the, the 30 rock episode where they have the group that gets together to sing the song, trying to get Jack Donaghy's dad, a kidney and Elvis Costello says, Hey, you know when someone starts speaking in the middle of the song, it's really serious. And, and here it's <laughs> it's not serious. It just it it is a kind of true song about a junior high school friend who died. But it's um, I, I could do without the speaking, and, and the song is only okay. I heard about the accident. There's not much left to say. He wandered out in the middle of the freeway, 
must have happened right away. And I thought about what a shame it was Now that it's all said and done And it may sound strange But even now It's still the The album together doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Like I said, it is more polished than the previous one. It's just, it's not as good of an album as their debut and is really, you're right. It does, they're saved by the fact that they have the huge hit off of it, but it's, it's far from my favorite album. It's well, what it did do. What it did do is it bridged the gap, right? Okay. And, and the, and the thing is it got them that number 10 hit, uh, top 10 hit. And it took them not only to the next album, but I just wanted to pause and note that this is almost, we kind of mentioned it already, but important for me, this is the dawning of my own personal memory of music, is this moment and this stupid little album known as Sports, their follow-up, where I am now first conscious as a three or a four-year-old of these songs. We have it in our house. I'm looking at Huey's you know, throwing the jacket over his shoulder, looking at me straight in the eye with the other guys in the background of some bar or pool room or whatever it is. Like this to me is like, I'm fascinated to reckon with this album. I'm going to turn it over to Scott immediately now, (laughs) but I am fascinated to reckon with this album because just like I imagine it is for him, this is the beginnings of basically this show and all the reasons I'm doing this show and being fascinated with music. And for so long, I just rejected it. Uh, I'm going to have a horrifying revelation for fans at the end of this discussion when we get to it. But uh, this is just, this is an important moment. This is as formative is the you know, Genesis or Thriller or like, you know, the stuff that you were hearing, you know, in 1984, Madonna. This was it. It was this record. explain how we got from picture this to sports picture this gave them a top 10 single it allowed them to make another album and the sole philosophy for huey lewis and the news going into sports was we need more hits we, we can't just have one hit we need to have many hits many hits like better john than fogarty kind of like if you know you're gonna die if you're gonna be off the charts That's but right. you have as many hits as you can yeah so you know, uh, Eric mentioned that picture this kind of sounds disheveled or it doesn't come together. And sports, certainly, it, this is the weirdness of it. And 
sports doesn't come together as an album. Sports is not meant to be heard as an album necessarily. Sports is nine songs all targeted for the charts. How can we craft this one single song to give it the best chance of success of being a top 10 hit? That is the only question that they had in their minds at this point. How do we craft Everyone has an singles, angle to it. Right? There's, how, nothing that, you know, there's nothing that sounds like that's an art rock experiment. Nope. <laughs> right. How, how do we get on radio? Right. That's how you add a hit. How do we get radio to play our songs? That is the overwhelming goal of sports. And in the end, they succeeded. And how did they do it? They did it by taking what they had done. And this is where I, I talk a little about the, the, uh, where Devo is going to come in and, and that, that, that new wave edge of Devo. You know, Devo's sound is the sound of a band like hermetically sealed. Everything sounds so crystal clear in the mix. And Huey and the news take that aesthetic and bring it to sports everything is is perfected everything is is just as crystal clean as you can imagine and they do it also with you know this is where the the heavier use of synth comes in so synth bass and synth you know well synth overall and very little is actually played live everything on sports is overdubbed a number of times Everything on most things on sports, you know, is set to a, a a synth machine or a drum machine playing the track. Bill Gibson's not playing live in a lot of places. They could, they did on tour, but it's not what was going to get the songs on the radio. And so Huey is actually the one that brought a lot of that into the production room. He was hanging out with uh, starting to record the album, and Peter Wolf uh, was next door producing. Jay Giles uh, band. Um, or the other one there's there's two producers i know it is producer peter wolf not peter wolf jay gal's band okay see that's why i wanted to know yes I was like, very hmm. important but he had brought some of these synths into the starship sound and huey heard this next door he's like what is that he's like well i got the synclaver and we're running it through here and here's how we have this and here's how i sequence the bass on it and huey loved this stuff so bringing, oh no wait a second scott i did not know this either are you telling me that the synths are related to nothing's going to stop us. We built this city era starship. Uh, that's, a, that's later. Oh no, it's a little bit, it's a little bit a little early for that. Yeah. This is still Jefferson starship at this point, I think. So he's off the hook. We're okay. okay. That would have just been one sin. I couldn't forget. <laughs> but he, so Huey brings this <laughs> stuff in. Sound, yeah. And, uh, and like on new drug, new drug was cut live in studio with the band. And he was like, it's not swinging the way I want. It's not, this is not the way this is supposed to sound. And so he put the, he put the synth, synth on it and he put the backbeat on it and, and the drum machine and everyone hated it. Bill Gibson hated it. Band hated it. It's like, it doesn't sound, it doesn't sound like we're playing. In the end, after going through and listening, and Huey was insistent that these songs had to sound as perfect as possible to get them on the radio. And so he brought back the drum machine. He tells a story like it was at 102 beat per minute and it wasn't working. And we set it to 104 and then it worked. Um, I don't know how true that is, but a little switch flipped and everyone then embraced this sound that is all over sports. It is the sound of pub rock bar the band 80s. meeting the 80s production. Nowhere, um, and also also sort of the 50s aesthetic that the band has too. Like, 
I'll let someone sort of begin in a second, but just to mention, like, Bad is Bad. Listen to the start of Bad is Bad, a song that was written during the Clover Days back in the late 70s. Dave Edmonds covered it on repeat when necessary. And this Huey Lewis in the News version starts with this incredibly, you know, computer synth sounding thump, thump, thump. But then what do you hear? You hear the sound of real musicians singing, right? This stack background vocal. And it's that sound, that combination of things that necessarily shouldn't necessarily go together, but do, that makes sports so special. mentioned they they tried to get every song on the radio they were nearly successful you know five of these songs were singles four were top 10 hits seven times platinum you know every song by heart i'll end with this and i'll have a bit more to say later but sports jeff emailed and said man i think i'm really liking sports i said of course you like sports you're an american sports is like the betty white of albums or the tom hanks of albums you can't hate sports it's so good You can only deny it for so long until you give up and say, all right, sports is really good. Tom Hanks, he's been a lot of popular stuff, but he's a great actor, too. And everyone loves Betty White. Sports is the Betty White of albums. Okay, I'm going to start here and and I'll be brief because I'm going to actually mostly hand it off to Eric and then I'll circle back later myself. But um, this is the one. Yeah, Scott mentioned I emailed you guys and I was just like, I hate to admit it, but. (laughs) Son of a bitch. This is a great album, actually. And I didn't want to think it. I wanted to think, like, oh, maybe the early New Wave stuff was cool, but then this is where they sold out. And it's really not. I mean, Patrick Bateman, whether Brett Easton Ellis meant to say it was right, meant it to be correct or not, he was not wrong when he said this is where they came into their own. They're still, to me, have the, you know, they still have the New Wave sound that they had earlier. You understand, like, where they came from if you've heard the last two records. Because it shows up on songs like uh, You Crack Me Up, which for me as a kid, I remember listening to the CD. As I mentioned, my dad was an early adopter of CDs. That was the track that I always listened to. They didn't have a video for it. It wasn't a single. To me, it reminded me a lot of Holland Oates' H2O, which is another record I loved as a kid. song Family Man. They both had a kind of a spikier, edgier new wave sound, which, surprise, surprise, is something I would grow up to be an enormous fan of when I became, like, you know, an adult. Crack me up!
this record, uh, it haunts me now listening to how actually structurally great it is and how balanced it is actually too. Like this one doesn't really tail off. It has a weird song that ends it. I know Scott said he says it's not a record per se. It's just a bunch of singles. But I actually think like it's a record. It's If it's a bunch of singles, you're going to want to listen to every one of these. <laughs> There's like one or two that I don't like. I think are lamer than the others. But like so many of them, it's just immediately obvious. Where he's like, okay, that was the radio hook. And oh, man, that's kind of a good radio hook too. Um Everything about the Christmas of the production has already been commented on. So at this point, I'm going to turn it over to Eric and then maybe we're just going to fight like, you know, like vultures over talking about the songs as we go through it. Because, yeah, this is the one where I had to admit it. Uh, the They were right back in the 80s. Patrick Babin was right, even as he was killing Jared Leto. And he everyone likes to watch Jared Leto die anyway. So who cares? <laughs> and I'm going to tell you right now, it took me forever to admit it. But sports is great. Right that you'd be forgiven for thinking that this is a greatest hits album if you got like someone from Mars was dropped here. Um, it 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 works though in in it being a collection of singles and sometimes it is just true that the thing that was massively popular and even was aimed at being massively popular was for good reasons and it's because all the songs on here are great. Some are much better than others. But all the songs on here are great. And it's reflected in his performance, right? Spent 160 weeks on the charts. I mean, that is bananas. Um, and it's just from the way that it starts, right? With you know, going back to Scott, what you were saying about the, the kind of conflict, if there was some in the band about, you know, uh, the having drum machine versus they tried to get the bump, bump 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 the heartbeat at the beginning of heart of rock and roll from the bass drum and it wasn't working and and finally you know they they give in and just do it electronically the story of course behind that is they're playing a gig in 1980 in cleveland and afterwards huey just kind of offhandedly says you know the heart of rock and roll is in cleveland and like (laughs) is he recalls that the rest of the band turned him is like i'm sorry what uh wait wait wait. are you telling me that huey lewis is the reason that the rock and roll hall of fame is located in cleveland i I was ready to blame ian hunter and it was cleveland rocks that was there's you know there's no clear line drawn there but you know obviously making a claim like the heart of rock and roll is in cleveland that was the original lyric the band convinced him to change it to still beating um which was a good change Good change. Uh, but you still get the Cleveland mentioned in there. And, yeah. you know, I'm sure Scott could talk about this, too. But in live performances, you know, they would adjust the the rattling off of cities to the places that they had been <laughs> on tour, the places that they were. Um, it morning, really is. You know? <laughs> it's <laughs> Springfield. Are you ready to rock? Um, exactly. I love the yeah. idea. They say the heart of rock and roll is to be. And from what I've seen, I believe. 
it, it's a great song. It's crowd servicey in that way, and naming the cities and all of that. But also, it's it's fun and it works. Even the songs that aren't theirs, right? So Heart and Soul, another one of the huge hits off it is, is a Mike Chapman and Nikki Chin song. It's not their own, but they, it's covered by, um, Exile and I think one other group as well. The Bus Boys. Uh, yes. And go look at, I tell people, go listen to those versions. The Huey Lewis in the News version they is just suck. much better. Well, so okay, much better. Okay. It you only, talk about songs. You talk about, oh, Scott, you were going to say. It, this song only exists. This is one of those weird things that happens in the studio. They were recording Heart and Soul. They thought no one else was recording it. And yeah. they literally hear the busboys recording Heart and Soul next door in the next studio. <laughs> the same song they're recording. But Huey wasn't happy with what they were doing with Heart and Soul. He heard the busboys version and essentially said to himself, you know what? Ours is better than that. Maybe it's pretty good. So you have the busboys to thank for Heart and Soul making it onto the record and actually being the first single released from sports. Hey, Scott, so like my experience of sports in general is just being, you know, over this last few weeks being punched in the face by one relentlessly great rock track that I had refused to admit <laughs> was good. And, and Heart and Soul, like, kills. That song is actually a really good rock song. And I kept thinking to myself, Again, I was disappointed it wasn't one of theirs, but I, I still like a lot of their own stuff on this record. But that's like a really good, still has kind of a new wave edge to it. Mm -hmm. um, that's, I think, very close to the best thing on the record. And I'm just, you know, so surprised to come back to it after having heard it a billion times and seen the video a billion times as a kid and just discarding it as schlock and finds, well, this is not schlock after all. It really is a great song. And again, just the, the, the production on this, you know, like the, um, the, the synths in that song. I mean, it works it, for me. It works so, so well. Um, we, I want a new drug. Uh, so the, the story behind this one, right, is that so. Oh, legend. I got a great one too, by the way, when we're done. It's, it's a fun I, one. So, okay. I mean, there's, there's so much to talk about with this song and we can get to, we have to get to Ghostbusters at some point, right? Um, that's where I'm going and you're going to laugh so hard too. Okay, so it's, Huey is driving to his attorney's office and has this idea for this song as he's driving to his attorney's office and gets there and is like, I got to write something down. And he like, he grabs a napkin. And this is all, uh, after waking up with a hangover after a night out previously. And you know, guys, I have, I've tried to find where I heard this anecdote. I thought it was in the behind the music on Huey Lewis and the news. Maybe it was in another behind the music episode. No, it actually was in that book that Scott was talking about. He read when he was in fifth <laughs> the grade. The scholastic book. Yes. Um, yeah. the, apparently I think it was uh, Metallica 
who said like, you know, they're, they're all touring up and down California at the time that, you know, Huey Lewis and the News is up and coming. And everyone apparently agreed that the one person from that whole music scene out in California who could drink everyone under the table was Huey Lewis, which just for a band like Metallica that was nicknamed Alcoholica just seems crazy because it doesn't fit with that public perception of him. Uh, but I just I love that anecdote about I want a new drug and I'll, I'll, I'll Jeff, I'll let you take up the, the Ghostbusters part of this. Okay, well, first of all, let's just praise the song itself. Scott talked a little bit about it, how it's like such a like a like a rhythm like click track and all that. But first of all, the thing actually swings. I don't know if it's the mm-hmm. 104 BPM or whatever it is that makes it do it, but when you get to that horn breakdown, where it's like da 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 that's a really complex horn arrangement. It cooks. It absolutely cooks. It's got, it's first of all got so many things to its credit. First, the melody is funny, fun, and it's good. And, and the song, the lyric is funny. It spawned one of my favorite parodies that we've already discussed on the Weird Al Yankovic episode, which was I Want a New Duck, which is so dumb. But like, <laughs> in, in that in that category, that stratum of dumb Weird Al parodies has got to be one of my favorite, just because it's so like the kind of thing I was listening to when I was like seven years old as well, right? But the thing about I Want a New Drug that just makes me laugh so much is that, okay, so for the last week or so, I've been playing Huey Lewis around the house, right? Because I've been getting ready for the show. Um, my wife walks into the room and I just swear to God, this actually happened. She looks at me and she's like, Jeff, why are you listening to Ghostbusters? <laughs> she didn't know. She doesn't know no the way. first thing about that story. She's a music nerd like we are. She was like, you're listening to Ghostbusters. I was like, no, I'm listening to Huey Lewis and the News. And there's a reason you think I'm listening to that. Strange in your neighborhood. Who you gonna call? Ghostbusters! If it's something weird and it don't look good, who you gonna call? Ghostbusters! I ain't afraid of no ghosts. So, as, as everyone knows, the Ghostbusters theme song, I, the thing about I Want a New Drug that makes it so great is it's a song that was so good, a hit, it became a hit twice. <laughs> it was yeah. like, I, where, where did where did the Huey Lewis take it to? Was it a, how high did it Six. start? Does anybody, six. And the Ray Parker one got, was number one, right? Yep. Yep. Okay. So it, it showed it even higher because it had the brand tie-in for a fun movie. But yeah, that's a hook so durable that it was uh, people wanted to hear it twice, which is kind of reminds me of the time in the early '70s where people, for some reason, decided they liked Neil Young so much that they put Heart of Gold at number one, <laughs> yeah. and then immediately afterward they put America's Horse with No Name at number one, and the songs sound exactly the same. 
people just wanted that I want a new drug sound. And I guess I have to say, I still do. I think one of the reasons it works so well is because of the very different sounds. You have this metronomic synth bass and drum machine, but set against these wild, you know, guitar stabs from Chris Hayes and those insistent sort of synth notes played throughout and the horns, right? It's all of this. Doesn't sound robotic. That's the point. Mm -hmm. Even though it's so like precisely like arranged and overdubbed. I think I was making this point to you guys earlier. It's so slick and commercial, but it doesn't sound stiff. Bizarrely. It's a rare trick. One of the songs they did not write on this record is a song called Walking on a Thin Line. And um, it was the last single from the album, went to went to 18. But it's about the Vietnam War, right? And, and again, every now and then, and, and more so on Small World, I guess, you have these songs that are not quite in the fun category from Huey Lewis in the News. But I always have really loved Walking on a Thin Line. It's a good not, song, music. Yeah. I thought the lyric, I, I, when I heard the lyrics, I was like, well, that's a little bit too sincere, Huey. I went and I checked and I found it wasn't written by him. Yes. But the music is still great. The actually. music is yeah, great. Right. And it's one of the more, you know, rock oriented tracks. Uh, on this record and it's it's uh it's great the other one i i must talk about because i think in the end it still might be my favorite song on the record it's come up in a previous episode when we did our best summer songs exclusive hmm. content episode of uh of political beats and oh i know now if this is it yeah um, which went to number six on the tracks this is a, a johnny cola song that huey provided the lyrics for and it was 100 percent intentional this was meant to be a summer song, and I think it was released in May. Right, the timing just worked out perfectly, and it's reflected in the music video. Yes, uh, that, you know, which, by the way, when, when we're done here, that will bring us to the subject of the, the music videos yeah. for this. So you know, this the, album. but yes, they're on the beach, and Huey's trying to track down a girl because Huey's always trying to track down a girl. This is one of the uh, times that Huey doesn't get the girl, but does get a girl in the end, if you, if you know the video. But it has that hot fun in the summertime drum pattern. Bill Gibson's talked about how he tried to play that, that those doo-wop backing vocals, which sort of harkens back two decades, two and a half decades earlier uh, on the music charts. I love that fast piano, those piano chords that are played throughout. It's in 12-8 time. It's just a wonderful wonderful pop song that Johnny Cola nails. There's some weirdness in there too. Huey talked about it was really hard to write lyrics for this song because of the way it was was constructed. There's a lot of, there's major mm-hmm. and minor minor chords are all over the place. And this is almost shockingly, to my mind, the most enduring track on the album. You are more likely mm-hmm. to hear If This Is It being played somewhere mm-hmm. than any other song on this record, which is weird. Yes, it was a six hit, but you would think, want a new drug or harder rock and roll? No. If This Is It is the most enduring track from sports. And yet, it could be because it's also the best track on sports. You've been thinking, and I've been drinking. We both know that it's just not right. Now you're pretending that it's not ending. You say anything to avoid a fight. Girl, don't lie and tell me that you need me. Girl, don't cry and tell me. Nothing's wrong I'll be alright 
I think I agree. Scott, I have a theory as to why, by the way, it is. You know, because the song that If This Is It reminds me the most of are the two songs of Billy Joel's career from around this time that are his most Mm. enduring as well, that you always hear on the radio. And what, of course, are they? Tell her about it, a bit Mm -hmm. of an old throwback. And The Longest Time, which is pure acapella. Sure. Those are like 50s trad throwbacks. Or even Uptown Girl. Uptown yeah. Girl, of course, right? I mean, those, I mean, well, Uptown Girl, let's talk about a song that, like, yeah, I don't care how ubiquitous it is. It's just well written. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a good song. If This Is It is a well written song. And I think one of the things is I actually find myself saying I'm not the biggest fan of Huey Lewis's voice when I'm listening to a lot of the things he sings. I don't know. It's just maybe not to my tastes. But If This Is It is exactly the kind of tune he was born to say mm-hmm. like it, that like he says he had trouble writing the lyrics but in terms of his range and the melody like he kills that on the delivery and it's so genial now eric what were you gonna say well I, this is to me an example of what i was saying at the beginning about huey lewis in the news being you know of such a moment in the 1980s and simultaneously retro right the doo-wop vocals and it all works so well and so perfectly on this song and i have i have this cr- a great story about it that that is now forever associated with the song for me. It was my freshman year of college. And my roommate is uh, from Louisville, Kentucky. He's into all kinds of weird music, a lot of underground hip hop. So if like he's, you know, playing on Winamp, right? Whatever's on shuffle, uh, it's all oh, kinds Winamp. of weird oh, stuff. You're carrying me back to the good old. I know, right? <laughs> it really Winamp. When you have really, different skins for your Winamp. Too. Yeah. That was wonderful. Jeff, as you know, it really whips the llama's ass. Um, the. So I'm I'm playing stuff one night and when he got back and walks into the the dorm room I'm playing um Samuel Barber's Adagio for strings, right? right. Beautiful, haunting, incredible piece of music. You know, if if anybody doesn't know it, it's in, it's on the soundtrack to Platoon. Play it, you'll you'll immediately recognize it. It's just it's gorgeous and I mean just truly haunting and captivating. An incredibly emotional piece of music. And he's, you know, he's not a classical music guy. He's really digging this. Like he lays down on the bed and is listening to it and is really enjoying it. It's this very mellow kind of fades out. And I forget for a moment that it's on shuffle. And the next thing that comes up (laughs) is the snare roll of If This Is It by Huey Lewis in the news. And I just hear Jackson go, no. (laughs) And I die now every time i hear that snare it's kind of roll moment in the is just shattered for yeah just like this mood that had been set by this ethereal incredible piece of music is wrecked by another incredible piece of music but probably not the one to follow adagio for strings that's so wonderful that reminds me of all the goofy kind of dorm room incidents i had with like you know, like people, and they're just like all of a sudden, like something bizarre and frightening. Like Peter Gabriel would come on and <laughs> leave the room. They're just like, I don't want to have anything to do with with intruder. That sounds too disturbing. <laughs> and, and this is different, but oh, wonderful story. I just would know. By the way, one of the things we should talk about is um, this is the Huey. I didn't realize actually until putting it all together now that Huey Lewis was such a major force on MTV in terms of these videos. Mm-hmm. Now you pointed it out already, Eric. But like this is where it becomes unavoidable. I still have like just burned into my brain, you know, Huey Lewis standing in 
the harder rock and roll is still beat. And like, I remember that. I remember if this is it, as Scott has already talked about. I remember the video for Bad is Bad. I remember the video for One a New Drug. Like, I saw it yesterday. And in fact, I did see it yesterday because I had to, because I had to get a good screen cap of it for Twitter. Um, uh, and actually, it kind of takes us into the next thing that they're going to be involved with. But like, it's just like one of those things you don't realize that they were making seven minute videos like Thriller or like or the way Guns N' Roses would be doing it later. Uh, and they're the least like assuming band in the world that you would think would do it. But the reason is that Huey Lewis genuinely had some real charisma. He's just a really likable, obviously a really handsome guy, but he's also funny. He seems like he's, he's like, it's funny. You see him like mouthing like lines during a lot of these videos. Like he's talking to the girl and you could tell what he's saying. He seems like he's actually a good actor. Didn't he show up in back to the future, which is the thing I guess we should talk about next. Well, um, you know, but what one real, say? one real quick note on just the music videos that I, I think is incredibly important is like they always avoided a literal translation of the song in the music video. They, they clearly had fun with it. Um, there's again for that VH1 behind the music I keep referencing, there's a clip in there that they filmed of him, um, pitching part of the video for if this is it, where they're like, they're out playing in the water and there's a shark swimming out (laughs) towards them. And then it turns over and it's Mario, the bass player. Um, Just everybody cracking up at that. And it's, you know, really understanding the medium of MTV and the importance of music videos and that, you know, you could, you had a lot of people doing the just, it's the band playing the song, right? And that's really all the music video is. Or, you know, it's a literal translation of the song, which works sometimes and can also just be incredibly cringy sometimes. But the way that they decided to have so much fun with the music videos made them enduring um, and really had that reciprocal relationship with MT- it boosting MTV and MTV further boosting them. And it's why so many of them are as memorable as you've pointed out. One other thing I'd like to point out, I wonder if Scott, you know, has any thoughts about this is that I, I just, you know, because of course I saw all these videos as a kid, right? And now, like, I'm just like, when I'm watching them again for the first time in forever, like, if these echoes are coming back. One thing that came through watching them again is that it really is a band ethos, right? So, like, Huey's the lead singer. He's the, 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 the handsome, romantic front man. But, like, all, all the other members of the band are always in the video. They're yeah. always participating. He, he makes it clear this is a group, right? Just the way Scott emphasized. Like, Huey Lewis in the news isn't just... Huey Lewis and mm-hmm. some dudes. It's like they're all there. And that's where I get like the goofy cameos, like the shark thing that Eric was talking about. But anyways, yeah, this is like you know, the beginning of like this like sort of conquered MTV. And of course, they're going to have like a lot of videos. And I think, by, you know, some of them less successful later on, including the one I already joked about earlier. But Scott, <laughs> did you have any thoughts on, on, I guess, the MTV dominant era of Huey, which I guess also involves We Are the World era Huey? Yes. And, and continues into four, where uh, there were a ton right. of videos for four that were very popular uh, on MTV. Yeah. The, the development of Huey Lewis as, as, a, as a character, as a, as a light, as an affable guy, as a hardworking mm-hmm. everyman, as a, as a handsome dude who can't quite get the girl or is always chasing after the girl. Um, and, and, you know, the, the obstacles that are capsizing his boat, Scott. I mean, I honestly, <laughs> if you take a girl out on the water in, in San Francisco Bay and then you turn the boat over and she's wearing a gown, yeah. you shouldn't expect to make it. Well, especially if it's this your, is this is a reference to one yacht. of those dumb videos. Yes, <laughs> coming up coming up very soon. But there, yeah, yeah. The, so there, there's two things we should talk about before we get to four, which is the band's fourth album, and they're both 
massive. I mean, massive on a scale of you know, off the charts. One is the participation in a little song called We Are the World, USA for Africa yeah. project. Mentioned that um, Trouble in Paradise from the first album was included on the, the USA for Africa album. So it got a little more attention. And then Huey has a solo in the song We Are the World but only got it because Prince pulled out at the last minute. Prince was supposed to have that portion of We Are the World and didn't show up to record. So Huey took wow, it over. Politics. And you've got Huey and Cindy Lauper doing a little chorus, uh, doing a little verse uh, in, in We Are the World. And the rest of the news are, are, are part of the chorus, singing the, uh, well, singing the chorus of We Are the World. So he was involved in We Are the World, one of the biggest moments of the 1980s. And then he and the band, and him specifically as an actor... In the film, involved in one of the biggest movies of the 1980s, and frankly, one of the best movies ever made, Back to the Future. And all that goodwill, that was there was no number one hit from sports. It, the album reached number one, one of only five albums the entire year of 1984 to make it to number one, but no number one songs. They fixed that's that. So, yeah, that's actually notable. It just got out there because like all the songs were clustered on the radio at around like the top 10. Yeah. And it was just like, I should just get this record anyway. I know all the songs. Might as well buy it. But you have The Power of Love from Back to the Future, which would hit number one of the charts. The story behind how it came to be is interesting. Mm -hmm. Is you know, Bob Zemeckis came to Huey and said, we'd like you to write a song for uh, Back to the Future. And Huey's like, I don't want to write a song about time travel. I don't want to write a song called Back to the Future. I don't want to do any of that. So they said, all right, just write anything. We'll take any, whatever you write next, we'll take. And he actually wrote a song called In the Nick of Time with Ry Cooter. Like, what a, what a matchup, Huey Lewis and Ry Cooter. And they passed on it. And so that song ended up in Brewster's Millions, the Richard Pryor, John Candy vehicle that came out in 84. But the very next thing they wrote after that was a song called Power of Love. And they were right up against the deadline. You guys know the scene in, in, uh, in Back to the Future when the pinheads play the song, right? And it's a very like roughed up version of of power love and then Huey. yeah like the metal version right. of uh, like if Huey Lewis in the news had gone a little harder edged yeah. yeah and then Huey as the principal he says you have to stop now boys you're, you're just too damn loud they stopped before the lyrics began because at that point there were no lyrics they only had that's wonderful they only had the rough demo which is what they they ended up playing and and Almost so exactly like the mrs robinson yes we were, from our last just episode. about to say that with simon and garfunkel, and garfunkel. Like, yep wonderful analogy but they finished it up and thank goodness they did it went to number one it's a perfect slice of everything you know it plays over the scene where uh, you know, uh, uh, Marty McFly is trying to get to school. Late he's for school. Skate, he's skateboarding on the back of, with the, on the back of cars, and he just gets out of the docks, uh, you know, home, and he and it's just you know all the all the energy and the silliness of that song. It's a, it's Chris Hayes and Huey Lewis and Johnny Cola gave an interview. Um, actually, Stephen Hyden. It's a piece that Stephen Hyden wrote on Huey Lewis and Johnny Cola's in the in in the uh, dressing room talking about Power of Love, and he's like popping you know tomatoes and veggies in his mouth he said yeah you know i uh i came in and they had it and you know that's that part that goes doot doot so i wrote that and i threw it in and i thought that was worth a couple of points so <laughs> <laughs> that is his country it's a big contribution because that's a major part of the song but that is his songwriting contribution to power of love which went to number one and then back in time the other song which clearly written after Hubie had seen the film i just want to make sure i understand you clearly scott are you saying that like those horn stabs do you do Jew, Jew. Yeah. That's the part that he contributed. That's the to part it? that he contributed. Yes, sir. 
That's 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 the money. I mean, that's it. Yep. That's the part that makes it right. That, that's okay. what makes it work. That's why he thought it was worth a couple points. So a lot of things make that song work. By the way, maybe we should all take a pass at this. First of all, uh, I, Power of Love, even when uh, we were, you know, I had before we had booked the Huey Lewis show. And I was like, I still haven't listened to any of that old stuff from my dark past. Um, I still loved that song. And and it's not even because of Back to the Future. You guys, you, I may not, you'd probably be horrified. I haven't seen Back to the Future since maybe like 1989 or 1990 or whatever. You know, like when just haven't revisited it, you know? I mean, it's just like I never felt the need, you know? But, you know, maybe I'm going to have to go back or something like that. Maybe I'm going to have to go back to Back to the Future. <laughs> but uh, I still love The Power of Love. All right. I love that song because I can recognize a murderously great hook when I hear it. And, I, you know, I've talked a lot of times about how people criticize 80s production sounds and of the 80s sound. I think we're kind of getting over that now culturally. We can recognize the quality. But for me, it was always obvious. And you know why it was obvious? There's this middle eight in the power of love that just slays me every single time. It was like, they say that all in love is fair. Yeah, yeah. but you don't care. Ooh. And you hear these really beautifully arranged backing vocals. Mm -hmm. and, you know, and with a little help from above, you feel the power of love back into that kind of nice, like, you know, you know, Stax Volt, Steve Cropper kind of guitar rhythm. That thing cooks it will always cook i will always believe that it don't take money it don't take fame you don't even need a credit card or even a debit card to ride that train that's still one of my favorite 80s hits of all time and i still thought that even before i you know even when i was still convinced that huey lewis was garbage not like this song and I don't know exactly how old I was the first time that I heard it but there was just even if you are at an age where you're kind of incapable of understanding the lyrical content you just kind of absorb it almost like in a you know a, a Nirvana-ish way that like the actual words that Kurt Cobain was singing weren't entirely important it was about the melody and the way that the words formed the melody and you're right there's just something too about that the chorus like that you don't need money don't take fame don't need no credit card to ride this train I don't know why I couldn't have explained it at the time but I liked it. And that is just to me the power of just really incredibly well-written music <laughs> is that you can't even, you know, we're digging into why we like this stuff. And I don't even know that I need a reason for this one. It's just so incredibly good. Uh, but you know, Scott, what you said about, you know, Huey, a, a big reason that he wanted to take up the offer on Back to the Future is because of all of the Ghostbusters stuff that they'd mm -hmm. even, when they used I Want a New Drug in the temp score for Ghostbusters, they'd reached out to, to Huey to offer to hire them for it and they right. declined. So he didn't want to pass on this opportunity, but you're right that he didn't want to write a song called Back to the Future. I just watched this uh, Netflix show on the making of Back to the Future, and, you know, it it could have been worse. I mean, they could have taken Sid Sheinberg's recommendation for the title of the film Spaceman from Pluto. I mean, <laughs> could you imagine writing a song called Spaceman from Pluto? Um, no, but you're I right, they not. just... 
they just gave them the next thing they were working on. And you're right. It works. It works perfectly. It's a perfect example of just that the greatness of that power pop of the 1980s. It fits perfectly in the film, even though I think it's Scott, it, you'd noted at some point, like, it, it does it has nothing to do with the movie. It, well, that's it, what, the, it works, but it, right. that's what we're talking about with the Huey Lewis videos is that, like they're not directly about the lyrics of the song per se, yeah. but they're just sort of fanatically appropriate tale to be told under it. The power of love works in the context of that scene you were talking about, which I still vaguely remember. And now, Christ, I got to go watch this. Yeah, um, you do. But you really do. Really do. I mean, the fans, if nothing else, are going to like murder me if I don't. But um, yeah, that's exactly what it, that's why it works. That's why that song's still always been one of my like favorite movie songs, even though I don't even have a strong memory of the movie. <laughs> I have a strong memory of the song. It is the, the very quickly. The lyrics are almost anti the movie in that the movie's not about love at all. If anything, it's not the power of love. It's the randomness of love. Like if something happens and someone's not a peeping Tom that you might fall in love with someone else. Like there's, it's not. Or your mom might <laughs> fall in love with you. Right. <laughs> remember that plot. Twist, right. Yeah. Right? So you do remember some of it. So that, yeah, uh, that I mean, was. It's not like I don't well, know the plot. <laughs> again, it's, it, it's the amazing part is that like, if you try to elevator pitch back to the future, like everybody would look at you askance. Right. I mean, you, I know the actual Weird elevator plot. pitch is like, you know, is the uh, finding your parents, you know, high school yearbook and wondering if you would have been friends with your parents, if you lived at the same time. And then, you get kind of the weird incesty storyline it's like wait wait how does this movie actually work and yet it works so incredibly well all right you guys we didn't need to do this but you've absolutely convinced me i am watching this today we should move yes, yes but yes it's just it's, it's a wonderful film and the, and the song fits so perfectly within it and i think the other thing it also did is it bought them a lot of time between we are the world and this huey lewis and the news you know as people who are concerned about like you know we got to have hits whatever it's well you have plenty of hits and you have basically you're all over the world for at least two years which is why it took was it three years scott for them to follow it up with uh four. yeah 86 was uh, the release of four f-o-r-e they were playing a lot of golf and it was their fourth album so it just works out that way this is where all that goodwill is cashed in you have two number one singles off of four two other songs in the top 10 one i'm virtually certain jeff has never heard of in his life despite the fact it was a top 10 hit off this album and i'm curious uh, i liked four a little better than i thought going back and, and listening i had always sort of in my mind said it's not as well it's not as good as sports that's a very high bar to clear but four in my mind was always an album that was overworked it is so it is so compressed it is so the humanity is sucked out of it in a way that it is not on sports four sounds like the product of people in a studio for seven weeks trying to get everything pristinely correct and the oxygen just, just gets sucked out of the room in a lot of places when having you have that many years to overthink it this is the sort of thing that happens having said that i mean that's it yeah, yeah. i did like it a little more than i thought i would especially on some of the album tracks not late in the album because as jeff has mentioned earlier some of the Poor tracks are usually buried late in the albums that Huey Lewis puts out. But there are some good songs along the way. Two number one tracks, uh, some great videos. You can also see a bit of weariness in that I think fully half of the songs here come from outside of the band. You know, mm -hmm. uh, Bruce Hornsby and his brother write a track and doing it all for my baby is an outside track. And 
I Never Walk Alone is an outside track. So you have these these songs that are brought into the band. They do their best with them. Some of them are very good, but it's a different feel, and it feels a little less like Huey Lewis and the Blues that I wish it did. I like things that go fast. Cause I know the good things don't ever last. I like believing in what I want to. I don't like no one to tell me what to do. I like the times that we've had. But I couldn't tell you what's good or bad. One song here that actually still feels quintessentially like it's a sports track, and that's stuck with you, and everyone knows it. That was the one that I was making the joke reference to earlier with the video where like they're paddling out in San Francisco Bay, and he upends the boat, and they end up stranded on some random island, which I have no idea where this was actually filmed. It's funny. It's goofy. <laughs> I still like it. But it's like a seven-and-a-half-minute-long video, which is, again, thriller length from Huey Lewis in the news. Maybe gives you some sense of how they were kind of overthinking it at this point. Um, because you're right. Most of the music doesn't add up. Um, like, hip to be square, uh, which I think, unfortunately, Patrick Bateman did reference at some he point. Did. Oh, it's his yes. favorite song. Yeah, not mine. I got to tell you, man, that one, did, that one did not grow on me. Uh, from when I knew as a kid, as I again mentioned earlier, the video to that is one of the most like repulsive videos I've ever seen. And revisiting it again confirmed me in all of my priors. Where they're like, for some reason, there's like a fisheye lens up close to the kit, like the microphone or yep. everything. And the drumstick. All you're seeing. Yep. And, the, and the, all you're seeing is them up close. Like you're seeing people's like stubbly beards, like the, the foam-flecked mouth of Huey Lewis hugging the microphone singing about how hip it is to be a boring moron. I don't know, man. That song was bad. The video was worse. And this is the moment where you're just like, the zeitgeist shifts for this, for this group as far as I'm concerned. You, you see it right there. I What, what I had said earlier about uh, all the things that Brett Easton Ellis and Patrick Bateman, and of course, this is a novel where you have an unreliable narrator, so who knows if this is even an expression of what either of them actually think. I just think everything about Four that he says he gets wrong, which he calls it their most accomplished album, I don't think that's true. If it's not, you know, sports is their biggest hit album. Their most accomplished album, I think, actually comes later, uh, comes with the next album in terms of I think accomplishment, if that's the metric we're using, he says their undisputed masterpiece is hip to be square. Yeah. I, I, I like the song more than you do, Jeff, but I, I think I, why that, do you understand why that Marvel just killed this, this band for me for so long? Oh, I get it. I, I get it entirely. Um, you know, it's, 
it, it's funny too that he describes it. Bateman describes it as not just uh, about the pleasures of conformity and the importance of trends. It's also a personal statement about the band itself. That's wrong. It's not. It was not imagined to be that way. Um, weirdly enough, it was partly inspired by David Brooks's books, Book Bobos in Paradise, or at least explained partially through there. This misconception, uh, or this, um, uh, what Huey says is a quote from him, phenomenon where people from the 60s started to drop back in, cut their hair, work out, that kind of crap, but they kept their bohemian taste, bourgeois bohemians. And that's what he's trying to describe with the song. And he, he wrote it originally in the third person mm-hmm. and then changed it to the first person because he thought that it would be funnier and found out a whole lot of people missed the joke and thought it was <laughs> meant to be self-descriptive. Well, um, he's and the that- embodiment of that type. He is the sort of meat and potatoes, unpretentious, straight ahead, old timey, good pop rocker. You would not expect any kind of irony from this man. And that it's like people misreading sarcasm on Twitter, frankly. I mean, it's like, why did you think you people just don't think you're the kind of guy who's going to tell a or- joke. Right. Or, or, you know, the first thing that I thought of was the way that people uh, misunderstand what Oliver Stone was trying to do in the famous greed is good speech from Wall Street, which probably right. is roughly about the same time. Yeah. You you know, Stone wrote that to be this great indictment of, of capitalism. And people heard it and were like, <laughs> eh, he sounds like he's kind of right. Um, <laughs> it's it, like, I want to go work on Wall Street. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so, yeah, like people people missed the joke. But uh, we also do have to note that this is uh, the first appearance, you know, the the back Backing vocals there are, are not your normal backing vocalists. You have Ricky Ellison, Ronnie Lott, Dwight Clark, and Joe Montana of the San Francisco 49ers providing the backing vocals on this song, which is about that detail. bonkers yes. and really cool. And they show up Joe on Montana. A few other I, re- I grew up in the era where Joe Montana was the greatest uh, football quarterback in the world. Uh, and that's, I guess, my first formative years of football as well. <laughs> Gosh, it's all coming back to the surface. It's like therapy today on political beats. Scott? I, there, there is some misinterpretation of things going on. Hip to be square is one. Stuck with you, which which Jeff talked about, was the, the last song on the album because no one heard a single. And so Chris Hayes grabbed a mm. six pack of beer, went to the studio, cranked out the music. Huey added lyrics. That's the lead single. That's number one. The actress in the video, by the way, Jeff, is uh, is now yeah. Mrs. Pierce Brosnan, in case you didn't know. So, well, I mean, spinning I off into bigger she was, she and better things. Quite, quite, quite the comely lass. I, I recall even then as a young kid thinking like, oh, that's pretty. She was she was I guess you would call her classic 80s Foxy. That's yeah, the way mm. you would look at most of the exactly. women in Huey's videos would fit that description, I think. Yep. But but stuck with you, if you if you sort of take it on the surface is the story of a, of of a married couple who are just too lazy to get divorced because we are bound by all the rest, the same phone number, all the same friends, the same address. Like it is such such a hassle to break up. I guess we'll just be stuck with each other. But I think, again, looking at Huey and the way he wrote Hip to be Square and his humor, I think it's almost reversed in that Stuck With You is is the story of two people who have been married for, I mean, for an awfully long time and every now and then turn around and, and, and think, man, we do. Have, it's OK. This this should work. We do a lot in common. And and like the yeah. joke of it is, yeah, we even have the same phone number. We live in the same place. We have so much in common. But it goes it goes so much deeper than that. And so I, I think looking at it on its face of saying, oh, it's just two people who are too lazy to break up. That's that's not quite the way it stuck with you should be should be interpreted.
That's a fine number one. The other number one is one of those that has just fallen off the radar completely. Jacob's Ladder, song written oh, by. Oh yeah, you know what? You you already said like that's the one Jeff probably didn't know. No, I there's another one know. too. But mm-hmm. yeah, Jacob's well, Ladder is one that people probably wouldn't know by title, perhaps even. But it hit number one. The amount of goodwill the band had to drive a song like that to number one is pretty incredible. The yeah. one I was the one I was referencing, Jeff, is I know what I like, which went to number nine. That was a top ten. It was a single. Hit. It was a single, and it was top ten. Huh? And it is a sweet Nick Lowe reference. I like the sound of breaking glass. Breaking and if you glass. don't believe it's me, it's not a terrible song. I have to say, like, it's a good it, song. I would not have thought it was a top ten single at all. But yep. yeah, no, it's not bad. No, I think that's a really good song actually. And the one that comes, I think, just after it is. I always thought Huey. Yeah, I always thought Huey wrote it because it is such a great statement about the band. We've talked about this a few times now in the episode. Like, it is a band. It, they are friends who love to play, who write together, sing together, and the song "I'll Never Walk Alone." cementing the band's partnership. Um, but he didn't write it. It's an outside. Someone else wrote it. But it does completely describe the way that those guys interact and how strong their 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 bond was during the course of all this great success. I guess the only other one I want to mention is, well, there's two, I guess. Whole Lot of Love and Naturally. I'll just say the same thing about those two songs. Those two leap off the page for me because they are the two, only two, really organic sounding songs on the whole album. Naturally is this wonderful acapella thing that the band was very good at. And Whole Lot of Love also starts acapella before transitioning into like this 50s era Dave Edmonds style twangy rave up. Those two moments stand apart from so much of the, again, really compressed, overworked production on a lot of the album that they're both real big highlights for me. It's so interesting. Somebody even made a joke about it to me on Twitter. It's like, okay, so like you, you, you're trying to sell number one. You just had this big hit. Yeah, let's end the album with acapella and doo-wop. That's the way we're going to do it. But yeah, I mean, I guess they just wanted to like pay a tribute to their roots. What up? All the beds have been put on They don't know what to do Ever since you said goodbye to me And the flowers in the room Just refuse to bloom Cause we all want you back, you see And though Mr. Moon Is left without a tune And his shadows lost the harmony So don't waste any time Come back and change your mind Everything will work out naturally You know that life is a struggle And only the strong survive So it's up to me and you do. I don't know if anybody has any final thoughts about four or we wanted to move I, on to what for me I just, at my time was the last memory of Huey in my like youth. You were going to say? I, 
I want to know uh, two other things. One, you're absolutely right about Jacob's Ladder. I, I, I like Bruce Hornsby, and this is not a great example of, I think, Bruce Hornsby's songwriting. And it is almost, inex- it, it's not almost, it is inexplicable to me that this was a number one hit. But other than to explain <laughs> it through, I think what you said, Scott, that it's just like the power of sports having come before it, that the first single off of it was just going to be propelled that far just kind of drafting off of what sports had been before it. Uh, the other is um, you had mentioned, we talked about how some of these outside songs, when they bring them in and make them their own, they do a really good job with that. And I think yes. doing it all for my baby is an example of doing a really mm-hmm. good job with an outside song and making it their own. I like, and this one, it, it jogged a personal memory for me. So um the single is released. I looked it up June 29th, 1987. So I talked about at the beginning, how I had a whole bunch of 45s as a kid. I have the 45 of this, right? I can vividly remember both, you know, when you take it out, the, the, uh, sticker in the center that has you know, the text that says chrysalis and the butterfly that's flying off and the cover the sleeve with the schnauzer and a Hawaiian shirt on the beach and the girl schnauzer reflected in his sunglasses. I, I remember this vividly. So if it's 87, I just want you all to imagine like five-year-old me making my mom take me to the record store so I can buy this single because this is what I was into at the time. So I could take it home and spin it on my Big Bird Sesame Street record player. Um, <laughs> I, I will always have a special spot in my heart for this song, if not only because of that nostalgia pull, but it, it, it is there for me. And I think it's, again, a good song and a good example of how they were able to bring in these songs that other people had written and make it very much feel like their Later in the evening, it's been a busy day. She lays her head upon my weary shoulder. Listen to her laughing, snuggle up and say, Now I'm with you, baby. By the way, just adorable to hear you talk about your Sesame Street record player. We all had different <laughs> formats. So as I mentioned earlier, we early CD family. And uh, also, I I was the king of the single. I oh, love sure. the cassette single. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, that was my era. My little Walkman, you know, out on my, it's like that line from Pavement, out on my skateboard, the night's just humming with my Walkman, like my gum smacks. Like I, that was my childhood listening to like these goofy things. I could totally see you, like you're getting that vinyl in and this, like the way I think about like the some of the first goofy ones that I bought, like Gloria Stefan's Primitive Cool Bad, bad boys. Remember that song? That was my ni- embarrassing 1987 Erica said single. The first one that my parents ever let me get. I mean, and by the way, it's also funny to point out how, like, you know, there's a price that comes to cashing in all that goodwill and getting a song like Jacob's Ladder to number one. And, and what it is, is that uh, 
well, people are going to be a lot more skeptical the next time. And in particular, if you're taking a lot of time. So, I mean, you know, the next album is the one where kind of Hubie Lewis exits my world of sort of conscious knowledge. And there are a lot of reasons for that. I mean, it wasn't even because I had stopped listening to pop radio. It was 1988 when Small World comes out. I think it was just because the times had changed. He had not changed with him and he'd cashed in all his goodwill. But I do have to say, this is bizarre. this is where, by the way, folks, opinions are going to start getting weird on political beats as we talk about late-era Huey Lewis and the news, my friends. Um, uh, I actually think this is one of his better records. Small World is uh, – there's only one song on it that I remember as a kid, which I really like. It's called Give Me the Keys and I'll Drive You Crazy, uh, a radio hit for me at the time growing up in D.C. Didn't even know – and this is a funny thing. When I heard that one on the radio – I didn't know it was a Huey Lewis song, and I didn't know it was a cover, obviously, as well. I don't know if it's actually the best song on this record. There's a lot of weird, interesting stuff on this one that actually jumps out to me. I'm kind of curious to see what the old Huey Lewis fans happen to think about the record. This older Huey Lewis fan has never been a fan of Small World and didn't discover mm. a whole lot more that I like this time around. My, Interesting. You know, as sports was a, an obvious and intentional play for the charts, Small World was the exact opposite. Huey has said this number of times. This, no wonder I like it. Right, <laughs> th- this, was, yeah. this was purely written and recorded for creative reasons. They played exactly what they wanted to play and didn't care about chart success. Now, they still had a platinum record. It sold a million copies. They still had a number three single, but this did not capture the zeitgeist the way any of their previous 80s material did, at least since since Picture This. And and going back, I I, I can't fault the record-buying public. I, 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 just, mm. I just don't like a lot of the sort of side roads into jazz fusion and zydeco that are on here I like bobo They're, tempo uh, my i know friend. you would I think it's yeah a song. i don't um slamming the last track it's an instrumental they literally wrote it to be a soundtrack to 49ers highlights like what if we wrote a that's song that stupid. sounded like that's, that's, <laughs> that's what the, the this is the the mindset so there are three things that i take away and say are, are worthwhile. Small World, the title track, which is split into two parts on the record. Stan Getz plays tenor sax. Yeah. And it's Stan Getz, so it's fantastic, right? Um, I think Walking with the Kid is a, a very good track, but I think far and away the best uh, the best uh, s- single here is the single. It, it's Perfect World. It's their it's their absolute last and final bullet at the charts, and it made it all the way up to number three. It's a great song written by Alex Call former bandmate of Huey's in Clover. It's got a great smooth chorus. I love the sort of loose structure in the verses. Not quite as regimented as the stuff on four. Horns sound great, and the song really swings.
Perfect World is still one of my favorite Huey Lewis tracks. It's just stuck on an album that I rarely return to, despite many, many attempts. Rolling Stone, and they're not always right, but Rolling Stone uh, gave it the Worst Album of the Year award in 1988. So that is sort of the the popular (laughs) sentiment around the release of Small World. It's just so funny how bizarre my take is coming in out of nowhere with no prior background, no understanding of this. So, like, uh, I actually like you, you, the way you just described it. You named like four songs. I'd add two more. There are only ten tracks. Sounds like a pretty good record to me, relatively <laughs> speaking. I like it. Like you were disappointed. You understand the trajectory, but I'm just coming to it fresh. And I'm like, yeah, this is different. This is like I don't have an ex. I don't have an expectation. Sure. I'm not like, I, I'm craving more of that classic Hubie Lewis sound. I'm like, well, is this interesting or is this not? And maybe that's probably the, the reason they made it what it was. I agree though. Ending with the stupid 49ers uh, greatest hits. And I mean, literal <laughs> physical hits, instrumental track is just the dumbest thing on the planet. Eric, but what do you think? Oh, it's not instrumental because there is one slamming in there. There's one spoken word and it is the word slamming. Yeah, that, that one is forgettable to me. But, you know, I, like, you're right. This is a self-indulgent album. It is, you know, really just the music that they wanted to make, irrespective of what fans would think, uh, irrespective of the expectations that would exist for the band after how well Sports and Four sold. Uh, they bring in all the guests they can think of, like in addition to the 49ers being back. Like I said, Stan Getz, Bruce Hornsby is on the uh, album. Uh, the full Tower of Power horn section is on the album. Um, it's the, the the first like lyrically, socially conscious Huey Lewis stuff that I think he actually writes, right? Because we noted that Walking on a Thin Line right. is yeah. about Vietnam, but it's not his song. Now we can find one another. the album i i really like the album um i think it's in part a testament to the kind of music that i played in college uh is studying music and playing in jazz bands and all of that the fusion stuff it does speak to me um scott is absolutely right perfect world is a great song um and just the the lyrical construction there too ain't no living in a perfect world ain't no perfect world anyway i mean preach brother um bobo tempo the reggae's back but this one kind of slaps uh, like and the yeah. Bill Bill Gibson's drums on this to me are just fantastic.
I really like it. I think uh, Old Antone's The Zydeco piece is a great jam. It It is... You know, it'd be really weird as like a like a song to just put on randomly out of nowhere, like at a party or something. It would work at a party almost, but like it's it it it's just a great jam. And you mentioned walking with the kid. Look, it it to me it walks the line of being kind of saccharine because it's obviously about you know hanging out with your child. It helps that it's up tempo. And look, I'm a dad. It's it's that kind of stuff is is yeah, touching to, to say, me in a sentimental can, way. It works for me too, man. It's like I'm a dad. I know what that feels like. That was nice. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 a nice song. Like it, I like it. I like the album. Um, I understand why people don't like the album, um, but I really like what they did here. Yeah, I do. I'm not going to say it's like one of their best records, but I'm just. I think it's again. If you've known if you've known political beats long enough, it's hilarious that Scott doesn't like this album. That I'm like weirdly thinking it's one of their most <laughs> underrated ones. Right? Yeah. Yeah, well, that, that's about as predictable as it gets. So I have a question actually for, for, for both of you guys. Like, you know, where were you when? Where were you when 9-11 happened? Where were you when Kennedy was shot? Where were you when Huey Lewis and the News' sixth album, Hard at Play, dropped in 1991? You know, the funny thing is we've already answered the question for at least one of the members of this show. Scott, I'm pretty sure I know where you were. You were getting ready to go to your first ever concert, weren't you? Yes. Um, yeah, this is this is this is the point where Huey Lewis just drops off the radar for me, man. Uh, and like, I, this is the one that you know is supposed to be a little more straight ahead, a little more back to blues, not back to roots. I I don't really love it that much. There are a couple of tracks on it that I could single out that I do like, but uh, this is the point where it just gets a little bit. Uh, I don't know. Uh, it gets a little bit more gormless for me, and I, I I struggle to find to have like the most intelligent things to say. But this is exactly where Scott's going to come in tell me why this is secretly Huey's greatest accomplishment, right? not secretly his greatest accomplishment but i think there are some this is a weird album because it it plays against type a little bit in in this way i think that um you know most of the other albums are so consistent track to track and i think here you have some very good tracks and some tracks that don't work at all and surprisingly to a point that eric made previously the tracks that don't work here are the tracks from outside the band they uh Mm. eric made a great point that they are so good at taking these tracks that other people have written and making them sound like their own. People would not guess that these hits they had, Perfect World, or those songs before. Heart and Soul? Heart would and you Soul, have ever thought like, in a million years Heart and Soul was, was there? Not written no. By the, no, no. It just sounds like a Huey Lewis track, but these outside tracks on this album, like Attitude, which was written by Max Carl of Grand Funk Railroad. Um, that's Not Me, uh, Best of Me, I think, is an outside track. 
it's it's these outside ones on hard at play that don't come off well that that don't work that are sort of most encased in that really weird time between the late 80s and early 90s when the rock uh sector genre was changing very rapidly i think there are a few things here that that work really well uh the single couple days off went to 11 it's a great rock song it's what the label asked for you guys have to rock they rocked they still couldn't really get played on rock radio because by that point 1991 it's Louis nirvana's the already they're, coming down right, the pike old, at this right? point right yeah. yesterday's <laughs> news they still had two top 40 hits and sold half a million records at, of hard at play most bands would be pretty happy with that Huey Lewis had some great success earlier, and so it was looked at as a disappointment. Right at the end of the record, there are two, two songs. I think Don't Look Back is a great yeah. song. It's a Lewis Gibson track, and again, to Eric's point, just positivity, uplifting. Keep on walking, don't look back, although I would have picked a different rhyme than Head On Down to the Chicken Shack. We can yeah. push that to the side. I was actually going to praise that rhyme, darn it, because oh. I thought it was just like the goofiestly silly thing I'd ever heard. <laughs> I was like, why the Chicken Shack? I don't know. I'll take it. I like that song a lot as but well. I think the best song on this record is the last song, Time Ain't Money, is a fabulous Huey Lewis and the News track. Every now and then you hear that sort of country tinge come out in you know, the last song on sports and a few other places, but this has that extreme. That's always with John McPhee. Yeah, they right. bring back the John McPhee here. here. Yeah. And he plays. On both of those tracks, John McPhee's playing the pedal, pedal steel from Clover. But, and but the guy was all, you know, Elvis Costello. And, and, and as I told you, there's a reason I love that guy's sound. He yep. sounds great. The time ain't money just proves it's still a tight, tight, band it's a great workout for everyone involved and i i just always the, the the opening couplet always remains in my mind if money is the root of all evil i'd like to be a bad bad man it's a great opening to uh to time ain't money which again is they played it live on that tour i remember seeing it it's probably my favorite track on the album man said time is on my side he never knew me that well because i got Very quickly, I just I just heard an interview last night with Johnny Cola talking about uh, It Hit Me Like a Hammer, which is the, the Mutt Lang song that they did on this record. That's another top 40 song. I had a, kind of one foot in rock, one foot in AC. And It Hit Me Like a Hammer was the first time that I realized that bands would release different versions of songs for various reasons. So the album track has a really tight guitar solo from Chris Hayes. But the song they released to video, like VH1, and to radio had a sax solo from Johnny Cola. And Johnny told these guys in the interview that that sax version was never supposed to be released. It was only supposed to be the guitar version. He has no idea how that saxophone version, although he said he had some ideas, how that saxophone solo <laughs> version of it hit me like a hammer made it to uh, made it to radio and made it to, uh, to, to video. 
So is is it not even available on CD? Is it like a rarity, a a, a big rarity? Someone said, group? and I wish I were making this up. Someone said it is available on their greatest hits edition released in Finland. But I don't think it's so readily Finland, available. The Finland, the Finland edition. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. All right. Well, Eric, do you have any thoughts on this one before we move on to the weird covers era? Yeah, I, uh, there are some songs I like on here that aren't the ones that Scott mentioned. I agree with him about, uh, Time Made Money. I think that's a, a, a great song. Um, I like Best of Me. It sounds like classic Huey to me. Um, I like it hit me like a hammer. I, you know, Mutt Lang did very well for them. I told myself to take it easy. Cause this This song that I, I don't really like, but it just every time the song starts, it weirds me out, which is uh, we should be making love. <laughs> every time it starts, I see Steve Martin and John Candy walking down the street with a trunk because it sounds like the beginning of every time you go away. <laughs> and it just hits me really, really weirdly. Um, but yeah, I think I think Best of Me is a great song. I think It Hit Me Like a Hammer is a great song. I think Time Ain't Money is a great song. And I kind of wonder with what we said about Small World, if these albums had come out in a, the reverse order, if Hard at Play comes out in 1988 when Small World is released and Small World comes out after it, Hard at Play, I, well, I agree, it is, it's not their best album. It fits a little bit more in a continuity sense to me mm -hmm. uh, yeah, with, yeah, with the trajectory right, of the album, with the with, with tra trajectory of the band. So I, if I wonder if everything would have been better received if the order of these two are reversed. I mean, if that were the case, then then what comes next would have been their version of like Moondog Matinee or Pinups, where they just like <laughs> say, you know, like forget it, we're just gonna go do a bunch of covers. I mean, so like that actually really takes us to night. Was it nineteen ninety four, five at this 94. point? Ninety four, mid. 94. So think about that. Grunge has conquered the world. What could be less conceivably relevant than Huey Lewis in the news? I will freely admit I never knew any of this music. Everything that happens afterwards, I, I did not know even existed until we did this show. This is their uh, old classic rock covers album. And I'm just going to say it, it ain't great. I wish it were. I like the choices. These are good songs. I know almost all of them by heart. Don't like these versions. Scott, you seem to have some thoughts on why this one isn't so great. I know you yeah, had some thoughts. I remember going to Sound Warehouse and buying this like the first day it was available. And even back then being disappointed. You got 17 covers from the 50s and 60s. They, they had their drop by their label. Electra picked them up. So a different distribution. Um, and again, we, we talk about things like this, like their failures, but 
you know, they had two uh, two hits in the top hundred. I mean, the, people were still interested, but they just weren't capturing, you know, pop culture like they like they did. So my problem with four chords and several years ago is Huey and his voice. Now, I love Huey's voice. You can't love Huey Lewis in the news without loving Huey's voice because it is so singular. Nobody sings like Huey Lewis. I actually was thinking the other day because Huey, you know, can't can't sing anymore. We'll get to that in a second. And I thought, well, what about the rest of the news going out and just finding a different lead singer and, you know, and Huey could come out and say a few words and then they'd play the songs. But you th- step back and think, nobody would sound like Huey Lewis. No no one could do the things that, that he did with these songs. For better but, or worse, he's a quintessential front man. Not only just because yeah, he's yeah. always so strikingly yeah. handsome, but you know, he had that big sort of burly, brassy voice. It was like front and center. I mean, I mean, that was why it was interesting that he always made it a point to include the rest of the band in the videos to make sure that everybody understood that they were a group. Because you're right. He, he I mean, it's him. He, yeah, that, he, yeah, you're going to say? The news is never going to do what Journey did and go find like, you know, the Filipino guy who was crushing it at karaoke uh, <laughs> bars who sounds just like Steve Perry. You just you're right. You're not going to find anyone well, dude, that sounds dude, like there, him. There's even a, there's even a whole history of like backing bands that recorded those really lame solo albums. Like there's a Crazy Horse album. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, right, right. Yes. Yeah. It sucks. There's an attraction <laughs> solo album without Elvis Costello. It's not good. Okay, so like, yeah, like, yeah, the news is not going to be going hacking off on their own or something like that with their own material. It's right. Or at least, you know, that's- or at least they couldn't do a Huey Lewis in the News style album. I think like the the musicianship of the band is, I think, really, really, really good, and I think tends to get somewhat underappreciated. Again, if all you're thinking about is the hits, so like, could they do a really cool album on their own? Probably, but you got to go in a entirely different yeah. direction so so my problem right, so with, like, when you can't hack it scott you were gonna say yeah my problem with four chords is actually with huey's voice which is he only has one speed right he's not great at interpreting other people's work because huey singing is just huey singing it's it's one mode it's not elegant it's not sultry it's just Huey. And so when he's trying Dr. to take Huey is a contradiction in terms, my friend, <laughs> I'm trying to imagine him singing a torch song. Right. I mean, no, but so you have 17 different songs from 17 different artists and Huey essentially sings them all the same way. And it works. Well, you know, one out of every four or whatever work, some kind of wonderful works real well, but it's all right. It's a great track. I like Stagger Lee. I like Shirley. I love you. But too many times, it just doesn't fit what the song needs. And so I, yeah, I, I was disappointed at the time and, you know, years later think, man, I think it actually is because of Huey's voice on this. I don't think I don't think it serves those tracks as well as it could. You don't know how I
it was possible to do a bad cover of Good Morning Little Schoolgirl because I just like I love every single version of that thing I've ever heard. Huey did it, man. Don't let me down. I, I had to say it. It's like I don't know how. <laughs> uh, I, I find I find this record to be this is the beginning of the black hole era for me as far as in fact we I even want to think about how we discuss like the you know, the remaining part of you know, the, you know of the news's career at this point. But uh, Eric, what were you going to say? Yeah, any last thoughts about this this goofy cover record? Yeah, I mean, well, there there are two goofy cover records. There's one that comes well, later, right. Soulsville. Yep. Uh, and I think I have generally the same observation about both of them that you were just hitting at. And I think, Scott, you really, I, I hadn't crystallized this, but you just did for me. It It is, I think, Huey's voice. It, the songs, like, it all kind of sounds the same to me. Um, they're different songs, but they're, they're just, there's not enough variation. There's not enough difference about them that like, as I, you know, re-listen to them for this show, they, they just kind of wash over me. Um, there's just nothing that really stands out. So I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of either of, uh, the cover albums. And it, that's, I mean, that's one of the things about covers, right? If you're going to do covers, and I played in cover bands. You either have to do them exactly like the original version because people want to hear the original version that they know or you have to reinvent the song somehow and it just seems like they do neither of those things here and as a result it just it really doesn't work two things from this mid 90s era that do work i think i'll mention them quickly and if eric or jeff want to jump in feel free the year before four chords there's a, a curtis mayfield tribute album which i credit to introducing me to curtis mayfield because at that point i didn't know who curtis mayfield was it's called people get ready and huey lewis introduced to a an acapella version of it's all right not to be confused with but it's all right the jj jackson song on four chords this one's just it's all right. The Curtis Mayfield song. That is a fantastic. It's an acapella uh, version and it's fad fabulous. Uh, that one still sort of lives. It sounds like in, it would make sense. I mean, he yeah. goes back to his, I've, I know, I don't know this one, but I know the Mayfield original, which is a beautiful song. Yep. And if they're doing it kind of like their old school acapella, which yep. is obviously a thing that they really loved. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds right. And, and the other track to, to, to note is off of their, is a best of called time flies, which is out of print and not on the streaming services that I saw, but you can find it on YouTube. And there's one, there are a couple of new tracks on there, but one is 100 years from now which is a an outstanding track in the way of i guess it's a little bit of sports and a little bit of four but it sounds like classic huey lewis in the news it's better than i think it's better than anything on hard to play probably maybe except time Wait, ain't money but it's a great, great is, it, track. is that an original track scott or yes is it a it's an original 100 <clears throat> years from now huey wrote it with <clears throat> a couple of guys who were not uh, marcel east and nathan east yes Yes, who I think are San Francisco guys, uh, you know, yeah. small, kind of smaller time San Francisco band guys. And I think that's a fantastic track. Argument, I'm a little lazy, isn't everyone? 
think of the fact that first of all i if you had asked me even a month ago whether huey lewis in the news his recording career extended into the 21st century i would have been like of course not that band broke up in the 90s or something right but no i'm wrong there is a there is a 21st century era of, of the news and i don't know how much time we need to spend on it before we wrap up and we discuss you know where, where he's at right now but what do you guys have? Do you have any strong opinions about Plan B, which is the, uh, the 2001 Huey effort? And I have to say, I was not terribly impressed myself. But again, at this point, you know, maybe I'm being well, unfair. The voice issues to me particularly bother. I we, we need to interject, I think, one more other song that okay. uh, we get to in 2000 before uh, we get to the 2001 Plan B album. And that is his duet from uh, the movie Duets cruising with Gwyneth Paltrow, um, which actually works. I, I like the song. And I remember around this time I was DJing weddings and got a lot of requests for that song, which I always found to be a little odd, but, um, I like the version of it. It, it, I, there's so much about it and kind of the unlikability of Gwyneth Paltrow that makes me predisposed <laughs> to not like it. But again, it kind of works and I kind of like it. It's a, it's Eric, a good I listened to it, and you won't, it sounded like goop. Do you know the original, the Smokey Robinson version, Jeff? Yes, I do. Okay. Just and and I listened sure. to this cover, too, because I think it came up earlier, and I was just like, nah, I'm not a huge fan. <laughs> but maybe you're right. It's the unlikability of Gwyneth Paltrow that turned me off, because my wife was like, oh, Gwyneth Paltrow? That's so interesting. I'm like, I hate this. <laughs> <laughs> I, hate, I hate this silly celebrity. Uh, Maybe it's better than I, I don't mind. I don't mind tackling both Plan B and and weather at the same time. Uh, and sure. Eric already yeah. alluded to Silsville, and he said everything I would say about it, which is yeah, the same problems that I have with four chords. I sort of have with Soulsville. It sounds great. It's recorded at Arden Studios, but the Stax covers. I have the same issue as I do with the with the four chords album. But Plan B. By the and, way, just to be clear about the kind of range of time we're covering here, Plan B is two thousand and one, correct? And weather is twenty twenty, right? But yeah. three years ago. Okay. So so Plan B comes out in, in twenty oh one, first new album in ten years, and the the best way I would I would talk about these two records is uh, it's it's fan service. No one's going to become a Huey Lewis and the News fan by listening to Plan B or Weather. But if you've been with them for a while, there are little things here and there that I think you will really love. On Plan B, it's the last Chris Hayes album. He's with them up through here and I think leaves after the, the, the touring around Plan B. And there's not, I don't think there's any knockout tracks here, Eric. And you can, you know, you can correct me if, or, or add your two cents. But they sound like they're having so much fun on all of these songs. We're not here for a long time. We're here for a good time. The leadoff track is really very good. They do a cover version of When I Write the Book, the old Nick Lowe uh, rock pile tune. There's a great song right. called Thank You Number 19, which references all those great stacks and Motown songs, Sam and Dave and Sly and the Family Stone and Marvin Gaye. Um, so I don't think that anything is standout, but if you like the sound of the band, you'll generally like Plan B. Some say the word is Who knows if it's true? I know you're simply tagging. 
weather. If I say a few words about weather, this is the 2020, really an EP. It's what seven songs in about 27 minutes, but it's that way because Huey can't sing anymore, sadly. Huey, yeah. I, I believe it's pronounced Meniere's disease. Um, Ryan, yeah. Ryan Adams had the same thing and was able to recover and is now singing and playing again. But Huey has had no luck with treatment. And Eric knows a bit more about this than I do. But Huey has had hearing problems entirely, uh, almost his entire life. And during uh, a tour when they were on the road around 2018, he began to, to completely lose the ability to hear, to, to match pitch. Music sounded just like a bunch of grinding machines to him. And apparently it still is that way to this day. So they yeah. just released what they had. And what they had was a patch, batch of tunes for weather. And I think the first song and the last song on here are the ones worth seeking out. If you, if you are any kind of a Huey Lewis fan, I think the first and last songs here are worth finding. While We're Young yeah. is one that actually the new bassist, John Pierce, helped to co-write. And it's a great tune about getting older and being 63 or whatever, however old they were when they recorded this song. And again, longtime fans will sort of get the rhythms of the band. And the very last tune is such an interesting one called One of the Boys. Huey? She genuinely loved this song. This is, yes. this is actually the one of the late ones that stuck out to me. It's hard not to get a little emotional if you're a Huey Lewis fan and listen to this track. It is a song that he wrote for Willie Nelson. Someone said, you should write a track for Willie Nelson. He might record it. I guess he was looking for songs. And he and Bill Gibson, the drummer, wrote uh, uh, wrote the song One of the Boys and submitted it and nothing happened with it. And Gibson said, you know what? You can sing that one. I think this one works for us, for the news, for Huey Lewis and the news. And he was right, of course. It's a get. I don't know why I'm drawn. Well, I think you can probably put two and two together. I'm drawn to these country shuffles that they occasionally do. This right. is another one. McPhee plays pedal steel again on this one. And it's just, you know, Huey said he wrote it for Willie. And when he got it back and Bill said, let's do it, he read the lyrics again and realized he was writing about himself. Yeah. These dreams of playing with friends on stage. He's got his boys on his left and on his right, playing with his friends till the music ends. And this is released after, you know, essentially we know he's not going to be able to play again. There's going to be no more music coming from the band. To hear this as the very last song on the very last release of their career and all the sentiments and all the emotions that are brought to the surface with a great band performance and a just tremendous set of lyrics by Huey. There's a lot of emotion here. And again, if you're a little Warren Zevon moment. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, If you've been been with the band at any point during their career, listening to one of the boys will probably affect you in a way that you're you're not quite sure it will. Well, it's plain to see. I got my wish and I've been lucky ever since then. And one day I'm meeting my maker. I don't know where or when, but I still love the gypsy life. Yeah, I'm still having fun Though I ain't getting any younger I'm a long way from done One of the boys I'm making beautiful noise Yeah, I'm playing with my friends Till the music ends One of the boys Making soulful noise Rolling down the road Headed for another show Just one of the boys Standing on stage on a Friday night Feeling the warmth of the old spotlight Got my guys on my left and my right So hey boys Make a little more noise I just 
thought it was a good song on its own right, in its own terms, and I didn't I didn't even need to have any of that prior history. Yeah, Eric? plan well back up to plan B real quick. I, I agree largely with Scott. I think um uh, I, I I like Let Her Go and Start Over. I think that's probably the, the best thing on the album. It, it's an all right album. I think it's um, Huey had noted that they recorded it all in live takes. Uh, they wanted to approach recording that album a little differently than they were, uh, had approached some previous albums. It, it, it's an all right album. There's some all right stuff on it. But as, as Scott had alluded to, Huey had had these health problems throughout his life. It really goes back uh to age eight is when he first said he started having these horrible earaches as a child. And the, like, the treatment for it at the time was you'd get these five penicillin shots five days in a row and it happened to him every winter. And, uh, it, it comes back at different points throughout his life. He, uh, 1985, when he's on tour with the band, starts suffering these terrible bouts of vertigo. Um, sidebar, there's a little bit of bitter irony here that the, uh, the record label that signed Clover was Vertigo Records. Huh. Um, he starts suffering these terrible bouts of vertigo, has intense episodes throughout 1988 and 1989. And it's in 91 where he completely loses hearing in his right ear. Um, he, uh, this is all again from that uh, behind the music special. He described it as like being clogged from swimming in a pool and just like could not get it unclogged. And he goes and sees this ENT doctor. So by the way, <clears throat> this has happened to me, by the way, and it was just thankfully earwax built up where you believe it or not, where you, you just lose the hearing in your ear. You get it clogged and you can't get it unclogged. So reading about this story, I have to say nothing made me like sympathize with this guy more. Yeah, hearing about it. it's one of the most terrifying things on the planet. It's just like to like you you live on your ears and have them mm-hmm. taken away. This is well, like, and for you know people with I've I've got a music background, Jeff. I know you play Scott. You know yeah. you've done radio. Um, I record podcasts. Um, any anything we we recognize how our important our hearing is to us but you know when you're in these kinds of mediums and use these kinds of means to express ourselves that the idea of being told what this ENT doctor told him which is oh you just gotta get used to it you only really need one ear and he's like you know buddy I'm a musician no, I, actually, I do not just need one ear yeah <laughs> yeah so it's in it is in 2018 uh where they're playing a show in Dallas where his other ear completely crashes on him. And, you know, he, he describes it as just like stumbling through this gig. He's like, I have no idea what the audience must have felt or thought. There's no way that he could have been on pitch because, you know, like every bass line he would hear, he thought like the amplifier had blown, blown out. And it was just as like, everything sounds like that. And he's, uh, as Scott said, diagnosed with Meniere's disease, which I had not heard of prior to uh, his diagnosis. I just, you know, imagine living with this constant tinnitus and roaring sound in your ears and he can, he can pick up speech, uh, but pitch and music is just pretty much entirely gone to him. So weather, which they released in 2020 is this compilation of songs that they written together and recorded over periods of time over about 20 years. And yeah, Scott, you called out exactly the same songs that I was going to identify, uh, while we're young. Anybody who's, you know, uh, you know, Jeff for your birthday, right? Um, <laughs> approaching the idea of growing older. I mean, that's yeah. that's going to touch you in some way. Now here we are getting older, wondering what will be. 
much of youth is wasted on the young. Watch but yeah, the, the final track that is on the album, One of the Boys, um, you know, One of the Boys making beautiful noise, playing with my friends until the music ends, One of the Boys. I and mean, how can you not be a little saddenly touched by that as the final statement from this band? And again, one other quote from Huey here, which was in the Behind the Music special, which again, just really stuck with me. And I think really speaks to what we were saying about the kind of person he is and what comes through to me in the music, that kind of joy and love and happiness about music and life. He had this quote where he said, he's saying to himself, don't be a baby about this. You have a lot to be thankful for. And for a guy who's entire career as a musician predicated on his ability to hear and then losing that you would have so many reasons to be bitter. I might want to wallow myself for a little while. It's some self pity, you know, Yeah, like like, to to go back to the description from um, uh, Patrick Bateman, bitter and cynical, which I never were words that would ascribe to Huey Lewis. Um, He has plenty of reason to be those things. And, and yet he's, he's not, he's happy. He's grateful and really is just, it's a great model for a way to live one's life like he got to do the things that he wanted to do he got to be in a band with guys that he loved make music that he wanted to make and even when it's all taken away from him at the end by losing his hearing he's happy about the life he lived the music he made and the legacy he's going to leave i mean what what more could you want scott do you have any final thoughts before i add my little bit at the end about you know about huey i I don't know how much more I have to add other than knowing the little that we know about Huey when his ear problems got to the point where he couldn't play anymore. And Eric had a great quote. I'm almost certain he was more concerned about the people around him, right? Concerned about the band, the horn section, the live horns he brought with him, the guys who have been touring, you know, his manager of 40 years, all those people who were going to be affected by the fact he couldn't play anymore. And I think he's out of a job, right? Yeah. After you get over the initial, you know, what does it mean for me? I'm certain his his thoughts turn to what does it mean for all these people who rely on me for gigs, for jobs, for employment. And that probably was tougher on him than almost anything else. Um, it's it's been for the band a a fun, interesting career. And I think that, um, you know, the, the, the Patrick Bateman lines that we've talked about off and on, that that is really has become sort of a, a go-to explanation for the band. Like, all right, they came into it sports, four is their best, and uh, crystal clean production, all those lines. And there's a little bit more to it. And I think one of the best and underrated aspects is just the kind of band that it was. Um, not that it was a democracy, but that everybody had a piece of the success. Everybody wrote a hit song. Everybody played for decades with each other. And that's a really unusual situation to have in a band environment like this, where someone doesn't break out and go solo, someone doesn't get pissed off and leave. It didn't happen anywhere with this band for 40 plus years. And that's pretty interesting too. I just want to say that, like, you know, although comically I've resisted doing an episode on Huey Lewis in the news for like nearly seven years at this point, I guess I'm glad I finally got Huey just in time for my birthday. Like, uh, they're never going to be my favorite group of all time. Obviously, I didn't have that sort of childhood formation with them that the both of you guys did. But what I also realized that I'd let my prejudice 
prevent me from either either listening to this music seriously. It's say nothing of discovering some of it, which is their own fault, I might point out, but also for properly appreciating it for what it is and appreciating his virtues for what they are. I'm always going to be the sort of esoteric cloud, you know, dwelling prog rocking art rocker guy, right? That's my that's my shtick, basically. I mean, I like Soft Machine and Echo and the Bunnyman, but I also understand good music when I hear it and it, and it doesn't have to be crap. Sometimes it can be beautiful, straight ahead, well-produced pop music that just is just hits home at every at every point. One of the one of the, it's been really fun, for example, for me to rediscover how much I enjoyed sports. Uh, that album, that album, genuinely rocks. To find his debut album is like kind of like a hidden new wave, like gem. That was a wonderful discovery. And I guess the other thing that it, it you guys have both emphasized is that this is a guy who seems to have a lot of friends and doesn't seem to have ever made any enemies. And it's it's worth pointing out that like this guy is like he's genuinely the likable guy. The whole attitude is for real. That's why he always wants to support his band. That's why these guys have been making the same music forever. That's why, as Scott points out, it's devastating when he can't work it's it's not even just about his own problems it's about how am i going to take care of all the guys who depend upon me um so it's it's really kind of nice for me to finally get over my prejudice the way i finally only listened to rush after unfortunately neil peart passed away and then i found myself saying geez i guess these guys were pretty great after all I'm always going to be more of the Rush kind of guy than a Huey Lewis and the News kind of guy. But this is some great music, and I really enjoyed revisiting it all over again. All right, there it is, the Political Beats look at the music and career of Huey Lewis and the News. We turn to our guest on the program, Eric Cohn, from the Acton Institute, for his two albums you should own, the five songs you must hear from Huey Lewis and the News. Eric. The two albums... And I'm not going to do a lot of shockers here in the two albums and the five songs. Uh, the two albums are the debut self-titled Huey Lewis in the news. It, it, it is not, as we've said, too new wave for my taste. It is a fantastic debut album, underappreciated. More people should hear it because I think they will love it as much as I think we all did. And then the obvious answer is sports. It, it, you have to have sports. It is such, you know, in the same way that people joked about, uh, Fleetwood Mac's rumors being like standard issue to everybody who lived in the suburbs in the 1970s. I mean, everybody in the 1980s had or, or, or touched that album in some way. It, it is absolutely a, an album that you've got to own. It is hit after hit after hit and you will play it over and over and over again and keep loving it when you do. For the five songs, um, some of my lies are true. I mean, your first song off the album, I just love. I, I think it's just a great, great song. The first music video, it's fantastic. Uh, second, Power of Love. I mean, everything that we said about it is true. It is just a rocker and an absolute piece of 1980s pop culture that is going to endure forever. Uh, number three, If This Is It. Um, just an absolute wonderful song and forever, uh, tied in my mind to my freshman year college roommate. And it'll make me laugh and, and remember that time every time I hear it. Uh, for I want a new drug. Um, you, again, it's a song that was so great. It had to be recreated and driven to number one. Uh, but I just, I also remember when, you know, going back to, uh, spinning these 45s on my Sesame Street record player, my uncle coming over once and saying, like, he likes a song called I Want a New Drug. Cause my uncle had no knowledge of popular music. And it was like, yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's good music. My mother was, uh, in favor of it. 
And then finally, uh, Perfect World. It's, you know, it is not the most accessible album for people who are looking for something like sports and the hits, but it is really a great single off that album and just a, to me, a wonderful, wonderful song. My two albums yeah. will echo Eric's. In fact, uh, everyone should really go hear the, the debut Huey Lewis and the news. It's forgotten. <laughs> it was barely remembered because it was barely. We're, we're, we're to scared to say it's a forgotten classic. Aren't we? We're like, all right, do we want to go to classic level? Because it's really good people. Yeah. I don't know if it's a classic, but it's surprisingly good. And sports is my other album. Of course, of course you should hear sports uh, songs. Don't make me do it from the first record. The second track, the, uh, the, the slightly superior to the opening track on the, uh, the debut. Uh, if this is it from sports, uh, perfect world from, from small world that Eric also mentioned. And I, I took two from the back end of their career, just to give people a, a taste of what was happening after the, the, the big hit stopped. And they're both uh, they have that country tinge to it. Time Ain't Money from Hard at Play, I think, is just a really tremendous song. And we spent a lot of time talking about it. It's right at the end of their career. But One of the Boys is a really fantastic way to close out a career. And those are my five. Jeff, over to you. Well, I mean, I don't know what the heck you guys are talking about. My picks are obviously Plan B and Soulsville. I don't know. <laughs> No, they are exactly the same two as yours. They are going to be the debut album in sports for all the same reasons that you have said. There's no need to repeat it. Um, for the five songs, I'm going to also, again, uh, parrot Scott and say Don't Maybe Do It is it's just a ridiculously great track. For sports, I guess I have to go, first of all, with you could pick so many things. You know, he, he went with if, if This Is It. I'm going to go with Heart and Soul which I just, I guess, to this day, I'm still surprised they didn't write it because that's a Huey Lewis number by the dimes, my friend. And the other one from that record that I always loved as a kid was You Crack Me Up, which is just very straight up, like new wave angular synth pop kind of stuff with a hot bleeding guitar solo and a bunch of fun contrasting sessions. Um, from four, I'm going to still say Stuck With You. Yes, it's trad, but, you know, it's goofy trad. And I really love the way that uh, you guys explained that, like, well, you know, then maybe there isn't something so bad about being stuck with you overall these years i'd rather be stuck with i wouldn't want to be stuck with anyone else but then of course finally i'm gonna have to end who couldn't end with the power of love i mean even when i didn't like huey lewis in the news i knew i loved this song and uh all i can tell you guys is i unfortunately i am tasked with watching the republican debate tonight but as soon as that (laughs) sucker wraps up and i find my piece i'm gonna watch back to the future It is the Political Beats look at Huey Lewis and the news. And we thank our guest on today's program, Eric Cohn. He is Marketing and Communications Director at the Acton Institute. And you can find him on X, formerly Twitter, at I, Eric Cohn. Eric, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's a big time, long time fan of this show and uh, just an honor to be on. Jeff, we're even. We did your live albums 
now we've done Huey Lewis, so Squaresville here, as far as I'm well, concerned. Well, no, actually, no. Now I have to figure out the way I can next best get up <laughs> over on you. you know? Find uh, Jeff there at Esoteric CD. I'm on Twitter or X at Scott Bertram. Don't forget Patreon.com slash Political Beat. Support us. Help the show stay ad-free. Get the uh, exclusive content shows, remastered episodes, early access, and much more. Patreon.com slash Political Beats. Also subscribe for new episodes, too, through your favorite provider. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter or X at Political underscore Beats. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats. Next place.